Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. We're here to talk about the DC books for the week of July 26, 2022. Happy pre-Comic-Con week, everybody. <laughs> Much like a lot of the people that attend the show, work the show, I'm exhausted and have a pile of work. Um, so it's always that catch-22. You know, when people talk about Comic-Con on the creative side, they talk about, you know, losing two weeks and, and you really do, right? Cause you, right. you kind of lose the week of Comic-Con the days leading up to it prepping and then you're there and you're in the black hole and then. But it's San staying. Diego. It's San Diego. The biggest that's, that's, yeah. it's always been, that's yeah. got the best reputation, I suppose, yeah, arguably more than New York, like you were saying. It's the Super Bowl. Yeah. Cause it takes over the whole city. Like I was telling you before we started recording. So yeah, it is, <laughs> you do lose two weeks, but at the same time, you know, there's, there's nothing like it. And, you know, being that it hadn't taken place in three years, people were excited to be back. A lot of fans, it wasn't as crowded as previous years. Um, so that was interesting. Also a lot of changes, you know, we talked about DC not even being there. It felt a little strange, but you know, other places kind of filled in the gaps. Uh, even Marvel, like even though Marvel was there and had a presence, they only had like three panels, which was really strange. And there, they, they had like nobody signing. I think I saw like maybe two comic signings there. So not to say there weren't creators there signing, but they were kind of in art, in artist alley or at other, you know, other publishers doing signing. So yeah, it was a bit of a, bit of a different feel. Um, at least as far as the convention floor went. Um, but all the ancillary stuff, the after parties, that was kind of business as usual. Uh, there was, um, um, you had to show proof of uh, COVID vaccination to get your badge um, or negative test within 72 hours. And then you ha everyone had to wear a mask inside and they were pretty strict on it. They were making announcements every, maybe every half hour to remind people. Oh, well. And then the, like the security staff that's walking around, if they saw somebody without a mask on or with their mask pulled down, they would be like, Hey, you know, get that mask up. Oh. So feel pretty safe. Um, but then, yeah, outside the convention at the parties and whatnot, they were crowded. They were fun, but yeah, nobody was wearing a. Um, I'll say almost nobody was wearing a mask. So well, that's good. I can tell you, uh, you were there. Um, the big thing online is usually it, a lot of focus on the movies, Black Adam movie, and the MCU slate, yep. and uh, you know that's what we mostly saw online and on Twitter for the most part, anyway. Yeah, that, they certainly made a big splash with uh, the Warner Brothers panel on Saturday morning, and then obviously the Marvel panel uh, Saturday night. I was actually doing a, a press conference for Interview with a Vampire coming up on AMC at the end of the month, which was really mm -hmm. cool. It was at this rooftop, open-air rooftop restaurant uh, a little few blocks away from the convention center. I was there doing that as the um, Marvel panel was going on, and my phone was blown up with the various announcements and, and whatnot. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's pretty pretty interesting. Obviously, there's a lot of excitement about that stuff that's coming and – you know, rightfully so. That's what most people get excited about these days. And, you know, it is what it is. We focus on the comics, but there's plenty of ancillary stuff that people get pretty excited for. Less so with the DC stuff, only because they didn't really bring anything new. Huh. Um, it was like the most exciting thing about the Hall H panel for DC was the entrance the Rock made, you know, showing up dressed as Black Adam with the lightning and the smoke and, and whatnot. So that was, that was interesting. Uh, I will say that for the first time ever, they had a comic book panel in Hall H for Berserker with the writer of that title, Matt Kent, along with Keanu Reeves and Ron Garney, the artist. So that was kind of fun. And I got a chance to talk to Matt at the bad idea party on Saturday night. 
and, you know, asked him about that experience. And yeah, I was like, yeah. Yeah, you, you, nobody ever take that away from you. Biggest comic book panel ever, 6,000 people. And he was like, yeah, it's a comic book panel. Hall H seats a little over 6,000 people. They didn't expect it to be full. There was not an empty seat in that room. And that's, yeah, uh, that's Keanu Reeves really, for you, man. The guy knows yeah. how to draw a crowd. Yeah, except surprisingly enough, he was eating at Nobu, which is like like the sushi place everybody goes to mm-hmm. at San Diego, a couple blocks in conventions. And he was eating there on Friday night, and everybody's leaving him alone. So, I, in a way, it surprised me, but I'm all, it also makes me happy that people you know respect him enough to leave him alone when he's not when he's not working, you know, yeah. quote unquote. So, but anyway, yeah, it was it was a great time. It's fun. If if anybody's listening has never been to San Diego, I sort of feel like you got to do it once. And we've talked about there's tons of podcasts I've done in the past about the way you go about doing it and you kind of make your list of priorities, things you want to do. And you never get to do everything, you know, even myself this time, it was more not necessarily about doing interviews while I was at the show, but just connecting with friends and creators that I've met over the years, reconnecting. Um, and even then I, there's still people that I missed out on seeing, you know, sometimes by a matter of moments, sometimes just didn't even know they're there till after, um, as much as you, you try to, connect with everybody it's just it doesn't it doesn't happen then you always feel bad you know the people like oh i wish i i could have seen you but it's a yeah it's a different experience obviously my experience is not what the typical fan or attendee would be i'm not carrying around a bunch of swag i'm not trying to get free stuff i'm not even trying to get comics signed anymore it's just about seeing you know comic creators that are friends that i haven't seen in a long time and you know making finding out what they've been up to and when they want to come back on the show and promote things and and stuff like that so it's definitely work for me, um, but it's, you know, work that I enjoy. So it's fun. Yeah. That's good. I'm glad you had a good time. Yeah. Uh, so now and, now back to the grindstone with DC. Yeah. And last one last thing about San Diego, I, there'll be plenty more coverage. Like I, I do have a couple of interviews, a couple of press rooms, uh, a couple of articles I need to write. So that'll all be coming. Um, and then, yeah, plenty of interviews that I set up for the future that'll be coming later this year. Yeah. But yeah, back to the grindstone with DC. Uh, moderately heavy week, a week that has some decent books, nothing that blew me away. Um, there were some announcements at San Diego for new stuff coming. I live tweeted all the DC panels and, uh, plenty of you were happy to find out what, what's coming next. So, uh, I'm excited for that, but I will say, you know, we wondered what it would be like in terms of, you know, Dan first DC show or Dan Didio is not the face of DC anymore. And so, Who's going to moderate the panels? How's it going to go? And they used different editors to monitor, uh, to moderate the panels. And uh, I'm not trying to throw shade at anybody, but what I'm saying is their job is to edit comic books, not to moderate panels. And sometimes it showed <laughs> more than other times. It was a little awkward at, at times. So Yeah. Well, I can uh, tell you by, by far the biggest disappointment I heard and one of the biggest jokes is the renaming of Dark Crisis uh, into uh, Dark, you know, you know, in you know, crisis on or dark crisis on infinite earths by issue four or three or whatever they're doing, and then re-releasing. I mean, that was that's such a non-starter. Uh, I can't believe they would even consider that a a promotion. I was DC should really? be embarrassed. I I just I absolutely embarrassed. Did not. I, I can tell you that was not the vibe in the room when it happened. <laughs> Um, it was the vibe online, and uh, and I, I can tell you as a longtime reader, what a disappointment. I mean, w- what a joke. I mean, we, we've known from the beginning it was a homage to the original crisis. I mean, Williamson has stated that more than once, and then to get that, uh, 
Like, okay, I so just, I, I'm stunned. I guess I'm not, I'm not, I'm not understanding where the animosity is coming from. Then, if we knew it was an homage, and it probably always should have been called that, I, I don't really see the, the disconnect. And I will say, I did look on eBay to, to get that. Just I was curious because it's got to be some people that were in that room that don't care and are oh, just going to turn around and put the comic online. And I saw the I, I saw a couple sales for over a hundred dollars of the re-release of issue one with the different cover and the full name. So, I, I mean, it just, just feels like a bait and switch. Is that where the an, animosity? Well, it doesn't feel it is a bait and switch. It means it's, it's a classic bait and switch. It is a bait and switch. It doesn't just feel like it. It is a bait and switch. And to me, but it's you, got not a reflection just, on the story. It's not, it's just, it's just, it's just a cheap gimmick. And, and uh, I mean, it's a, it's a, well, I mean, you know, I get it. DC needs all the sales it can get, I guess, but it just seems to me like I've, I've been, you know, you and I have been generally, I've been generally enjoying the story probably even more, so than, you have, it more than me. What's that? You've been enjoying, you've been enjoying the story. Well, I, I know, but I just, I, I just think of all the things that you're going to release, you know, you, you're, you're, you're at, you know, to the extent that DC was at San Diego to make some announcements, uh, I just think that was a just a massive disappointment that I mean, literally a renaming of one of our of our event titles. And like I, I just it was extremely underwhelming to me. It was just like of all the well, things you could have done. I get, I get that it could be underwhelming. Like, who cares that they've changed the name from Dark Crisis to Dark Crisis on Infinite Earth? Like yeah. in the grand scheme of things, anybody who's not a big DC fan is not going to they're going to be like, what? Whatever. Shrug their shoulders. Somebody who's a DC fan might be like, OK, whatever. You know, and still, there's not really a level of I care. Mm. But if there's anger out there, I, I guess I just don't understand. Like, what's there to be angry about? Like you yourself said, we always knew it was an homage to Christ on Infinite Earth. So it's not like they're saying, okay, now you got to go. They're going to re-release issues one, two, and three with all new covers and you know the correct title. And now they want to they want your money again for you to go out and just buy the book with a different cover, a different title. That's not the case. They're just saying, hey, we're going to be a little overt and remind everybody that, yes, this is going back and pulling from the original Crisis, one of the greatest comic stories of all time. I, I don't know. I guess, I guess I just – I don't understand why people would be upset. I think it's – I don't think it's that big of a deal. Like you said, uh, it's a bit underwhelming. But at the same time, it's kind of cool, and the covers looks cool. And well, I might have I, more I, yeah, I, I guess I'm, I, it's 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 a cover buy. It's a cover buy. I just you know I would have yeah. I would have liked. To and have we seen know there's there. yeah, and I know there's tons of covers. So I I don't know. I guess I just don't I don't understand. Like let's let's not you know beat around the bush here. We know things aren't great at DC right now in terms mm. of behind the scenes, and that yeah. kind of leaking out into the books to some extent. But as we always say, nobody sets out to make a bad comic. They're doing the best they can under d difficult circumstances with discovery coming in and making terrible decisions, like not having a DC presence on the con floor. Yeah. To me, that that's more a reason to be angry as opposed to, Hey, they overtly changed the title. It was always planned to change, you know, to change. Well, anger is, I think a strong word. It's just, it's just underwhelming and it's a little bit upsetting and underwhelming. I think that that's all it's just, you know, it's just, yeah. I, I, again, I guess I, just, I don't understand. I mean, are people mad that they, Okay, because here's the other thing that I'll say: people mad that they can't didn't get a chance to get that book, and that's why it's selling for hundred dollars online. They they when they announced it, hey, everybody who's in here is going to get you know this special cover with the name change, and it's going to be exclusive to the people in this room. And immediately, my first thought is, yeah, it's exclusive to the people in this room for about a week, 
maybe a month. And then I guarantee, I mean, they didn't do a 500 copy print run on this thing. No, there's yeah. thousands of copies. They'll be giving them out at New York Comic Con. They'll be giving them out at other conventions. Sure. Eventually, you'll find a way. If you want it right now, I have to have it. You want to go to FeeBay and pay all that money you can. Uh, I, yeah, I was just I was just hoping for someone uh, some actual some something new as opposed to a repackaging of something that they already have. I mean, I'm I'm a sure thing. Like, you know, I'm, I'm a sure thing. I'm a, I'm a fan. I'm going to be getting it. Uh, and I and I love uh, you know I'm reading Dark Crisis, but I just I just really wanted well, something fresh. I mean, if you were there, yeah. I mean, if you were in there in the room, or if you're following my live tweet, you did get plenty of new. You, I would tweeted out all the new information Joshua Williamson was talking about. We we speaking of new, we saw the a, a, a page, an interior page. With the return of the Justice Society, that's confirmed. So, I mean, there's plenty of new, even when we talk about other, you know, other things. We know there's, you know, new stuff coming. And, hmm. um, I mean, one thing, one of the things I'm most excited about, there's going to be a new Superman um, one-shot or graphic novel by, by Cena Grace. So, yeah, I mean, there's new stuff coming, but, but I get it. I mean, if you weren't there, if you, if you don't have a copy, I may or may not have more than one copy of that cover myself um so i don't know maybe we'll do a giveaway at some point for that uh, <laughs> that's our well, crisis speculators will be happy so th that's good you gotta, yeah, cover, again, you gotta cover all the bases so i mean you know if you're if you if you're not happy as a story reader then you're, you're gonna be happy as a speculator so but uh yeah you know. again i will caution anybody i'm paying too much for it right off the bat um yeah. only because i think it'll be available uh one of the other things that one of the um one of the other panels, the Gotham panel, Rom V was there and he was talking about his new Detective Comics run. That's the first book we'll talk about here, Detective Comics number 1062, written by Rom V. He described it as a, an operatic, tragic story of, of Gotham. So the art is by Raphael Albuquerque, and uh, it's if you're a fan of uh, Albuquerque's work, you're going to lo love this because it, it feels like his – you know, very reminiscent of his early uh, American vampire stuff, especially in terms of colors. Dave Stewart, one of the best color artists, does the colors. Ariana Mares on letters. Uh, there's some interesting tidbits in here with Talia, with hints of, of Batman maybe losing a step. Um, I, I thought it was a great mix of this feel that Ron V is giving us of kind of a darker Gotham, a, a more gothic Gotham, if you will, but he doesn't lose sight of the humanity of the characters. There's some fun character moments between uh, Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson and th this m mysterious new family, I guess we'll say. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, Arzen, uh, Arzen Orgum, this character, yeah. Arzen Orgum, and uh, yeah. Heading to Gotham to do something. His mother saying, you know, I'll give you 12 months. Yeah, uh, you know, we've got some other people that are already laying the groundwork. Um, you know, a, a year in Gotham to rebuild the legacy of the Orgum family, uh, trying to help people realize their own potential. Like, you know, this sounds it sounds big and um, kind of a bold story that uh, that Ron V wants to tell. But again, it, it's all it also has that dark feel that operatic feel which helps it to feel kind of intimate so uh and one of the things and i hadn't heard this before so maybe it wasn't new news announced on the gotham panel but it certainly was the first time i heard it uh rom v and we see it in this issue confirmed 
Ron V mentioned bringing back Barbados, the uh, Grant Morrison created uh, bat god, if you will. Um, and yeah, we see him show up in this in this first issue. So um, yeah, I, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. I wasn't blown away, um, but I'm definitely intrigued. Jury's still out for me. I like the feel, um, but too soon to say whether this is going to be one that stands the test of time for me, obviously, after only one one issue of, of what will be 12. He also mentioned that despite the fact that it's this Orgum family, he didn't mention them by name, but just he mentioned Barbados and then mentioned, you know, this um, this big case that Batman's going to be on. Uh, certainly seems like the more kind of overt storyline that'll run throughout. He did mention that he's not forgetting about the rogues. You will see other classic villains and, and sort of stopped himself before he could say exactly, he didn't want to spoil before he could say exactly how they would show up. But we're, we'll get a two face story likely in the next 12 months. We'll get a, a Riddler story, you know, that kind of thing. Other, other bat villains will, will show up for sure. Um, there's also a backup in this one. And uh, so the same artist that did, the uh, recent Arkham City story that we reviewed, written by Dan Waters, Danny, Danny Fernandez, I think is uh, her name, but it's written by Sar- uh, by Simon Spurrier. Danny's the artist, Dave Stewart on color, Steve Wands on letters. It's called The Coda, and it's going to be a three-part story. It stars Jim Gordon. So I don't, I'm not sure what it says that, you know, throughout the Arkham City New World Order series, I wasn't a fan of Danny's art. Um but it all it took was me scrolling to the first couple images. The story starts off with a uh, five-page, five-panel page, and all it took was me seeing, like, the first two panels to know that this was Danny's art. Like, I was able to recognize it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's not always the case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not always the case, especially yeah. when it's an artist that I don't particularly care for their style. So I, I say that to say this. I think in – Arkham City, New World Order, it, her art grew on you, and apparently the same has happened to me. Um, uh, I do think, and it's degrees here, mild degrees, that her art is a little cleaner in this one. Um, but I don't know. It it, it, it it was a little... It felt a little... I don't know. Not, not composed enough for me. It felt a little too loose in Arkham City. Maybe this just feels more com- like more complete art to me. I'm not exactly sure that I can put my finger on on why it's working for me here when it didn't work for me in Arkham City New World Order because again, it is so clearly her artwork and, and the style's the same. So I don't know. Maybe it's just a difference of the way Simon Spurrier is is taking advantage of her style. Uh, but regardless, uh, it is cool to even though the um, Joker series. Uh, the one that was written by James Tynan is over. And we we know at the end of that, there was hints of Gordon kind of taking on uh, the role of a private eye. Didn't know where we were going to see that. Well, apparently we're going to see that at least for three issues in this Rom V detective. So I, I almost enjoyed this more than the, well, not almost I did. I, I enjoyed the backup more than the main feature, but I realized that, you know, the main feature is one of 12 parts, if not more, whereas this is one of three. So, this story moves along at a much quicker pace uh, because it is a very, I'll say a stately pace in the first story, in the main story, a um, little bit more setup as opposed to we get right into the action by the end of uh, the backup story. So all in all, it's a strong issue with some great covers. 
Um, and I am curious. Ram V certainly has shown his um, skills as a writer. And, uh, and yeah, he was somebody that I wanted to talk to, but just never, never had a chance to. I mean, we, we have talked about having him come on the show for a long time. I've met him in the past. Um, but yeah, just for some reason, I never seem to run into him at the show. So, but, but I promise he will be on at some point in the future. Uh, what'd you think of this one? Uh, I actually, it, I thought uh, when this first started off with, with Ram V, I mean, it has a very, like I said, it's a very deliberate, intentional operatic feel to it. And it almost feels like Batman or Phantom of the Opera. And it's, you know, and it, it starts off with, you know, this, somebody actually at an opera, the an, an opera called Auriga. And, uh, uh, you know, it is, it feels like Phantom of the Opera. And, and Bruce Wayne, it focuses in on a chair that's reserved for Bruce Wayne, but he's not at this opera. He's, of course, he's off fighting as, as Batman. So it made me wonder, why are we focusing on an opera to begin with? We got, we got Ram V doing what Ram V does. Ram V is very good, for example, in the pages of Swamp Thing. He's very good with, he, he gets really deep. Sometimes he over narrates sometimes, but he usually, I'm, I'm usually pleased with it because I like Ram V's narration. He gets to the heart of things and he's got some real cool themes. And here in, in, in his opening mon in his opening narration for this, uh, uh, opera, he talks about the, you know, the pearls and you, there's a lot of the Batman metaphors of, of, of that you can expect. And then Bruce Wayne's not there, of course, cause he's there as, Batman. And then what I like is, uh, I feel Ram V sort of, it's, he was a little bit unpredictable for me. I actually, I really enjoyed the scene as Batman where Batman Bruce Wayne is testing himself, timing himself. He wants to be, take out these terrorists in 18 seconds, but he does it in 22 seconds and he ends up confronting a, this mobster who's almost like this walking dead type creature. And, and, uh, he's ultimately helped out by Talia and Talia warns him of, of something is coming and you got to prepare for something that's older than the Lazarus pits. And there's this great big, you know, something is definitely coming. We don't know what it is. And, and Batman, then of course he tests himself. He feels that his body is off and he's got great, great dialogue, great rapport with Nightwing calling him an old man and just really good stuff. A Ram V we know from Ram V through fear state with his pages work on Catwoman and Ram V, he, he understood, he, he gets the voice of Batman well and, and the Batman family in general. This work worked re really well. I enjoyed it. Uh, I'm, I'm intrigued. I don't really know where it's going at this point, but I, I know Ram V enough and we've certainly with this Catwoman, we know that he's really good at building a narrative. Sometimes you just got to have the patience to let him do that. The backup with uh, James Gordon, uh, I find it interesting that, you know, coming right off of The Joker, uh, it's funny, it comes off a series called The Joker. We actually get a backup that actually probably could legitimately be called a Jim Gordon's story. <laughs> I, I imagine The Joker's nowhere to be found, but it's good to see, it's, it's good to see, uh, it's good to see. Jim Gordon back as a private investigator. Uh, I note, uh, I note as he, uh, as he is trying in his investigations, I don't know, if there's a continuity glitch, it mentioned in, that um, Raynell Montoya is the commissioner of Gotham in this backup, and I, I thought she was—I thought she was in New York City in the pages of *I Am Batman*. So that was—that's my only minor little nitpick there. But beyond that, I—I I, I liked it. It was a good enough story. It's nice to see, you know, Jim Gordon actually has some money in his pocket. He's actually arguably rich now, and he can take the time and take his time and focus on being a private detective. So it's good. I, I'm not a huge, I, funnily enough that with the Jan Danny art, I, I would have let, I still would prefer a more traditional take on, on Jim Gordon, but I understand the feel that they're going for. Um, 
I, I get it. And it's probably appropriate for Jim Gordon. So all in all, I think that the, I, I'm, I'm curious to know. I'm, I wonder if there's ever going to be, a, if there's going to be a connection with the backup story, with the main story at some point. Uh, not that it matters, but anyways, overall, I was I was happy with this, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to pick this up. This is definitely a decidedly different take than Marika Tamaki's approach. I definitely would not expect the backup to touch on the main story, only because yeah. uh, what Rom V is crafting feels so self-contained. Um, from every, from everything I'm understanding, that's going to be the case. But I, you know, I could be wrong. Um, as far as the continuity. I will say, you know, as of this moment, as of the last issue of I Am Batman, uh, Montoya hasn't taken the job. She was in New York to be interviewed for the job. Um, So, you know, maybe, you know, maybe Gordon called. She was still the commissioner in Gotham. Um, So, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's a minor, it's a minor thing. uh, So let's, we'll move on. But I, I do realize I, I I skipped a book actually. Um, and I kind of debated on whether I would even talk about it or whether we'd cover it uh, because it it's definitely outside of, you know, regular DC continuity and it's a little wonky. Uh, it's definitely not the kind of thing that's really for me. It's called DC <laughs> Neck. Uh, it's written by Kenny Porter, Bald- uh, Baltimore Revis, who was the artist on – uh, the Robins series from Tim Seeley that uh, won the first DC round Robin. He's the artist. Mike Spicer does colors, Tom Napolitano on letters. And it's, a, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's DC <laughs> mech. Yeah. So there are sort of not any heroes in the superheroes in the DC universe in this iteration. They, instead they are all fighting with giant mechs. So the, the flash mech has flash like powers. The Batman mech has, you know, Batman type stuff. And apparently there's going to be a, there's a mech for Superman um, who kind of shows up at the end of the issue to, to save the day in this reality. Dark side is um, trying to conquer the universe, which is, I suppose is not different from any other reality, but he, his parademons are, are more like Kaiju than the parademons that we're kind of used to that are more like human form. Um, and so there's, there's this idea of, of creating mechs, and there's this feel, certainly in this issue, um, I will give Kenny Porter a lot of credit, that he he gives this sort of feel and timeline that's that mirrors what happened in the main DCU in terms of there were superheroes during World War II, and then they sort of all retired, um, the Justice Society, and then later there's a threat and the Justice League comes together. So it's kind of interesting because if you look back at the Silver Age, Brave and the Bold 28, when the Justice League got together, it was Starro. But then in the new 52, it was Darkseid and it was Parademons that were coming that got the seven heroes together, uh, Cy- Cyborg replacing Martian Manhunter, um, in that, in that version. And so th- this is sort of like that in terms of, Hey, it's Darkseid. He's coming to conquer Earth. There's giant Parademons that are the size of Kaiju and these heroes are going to stop them, but not in the way you think. Um, they're going to be doing it by battling with giant robots. So. I do. I mean, it's not to say I don't like kaiju stories and giant robot. I'm a big Pacific Rim fan, but not for that. Not for this. I mean, if I want my superheroes to be superheroes, you know, I want Wally West to be the Flash himself, not to be piling a giant robot that has Flash powers. So, uh, but I did appreciate the story beats, and I thought the 
uh, narrative was interesting. And like I said, I, I love that he was paying homage to the history of, uh, of the DC universe. But yeah, I don't, but again, I, I mean, I'm going to read the press copies that I get and I say, you always have to give a series at least two or three issues. So it might hook me with an interesting take in the subsequent issues, but the feeling I was left with after reading this first issue was, yeah, it's kind of not for me, but what I will say is it could be something that speaks to somebody who's a big uh, fan of something like Robotech or Battletech or, you know, somebody who's not, uh, you know, a big DC universe person in terms of, you know, traditionally reading it, it you know, it might be somebody's first book and it is new reader friendly. So there are positives. Um, just not my favorite way to read about these heroes. So jury's still out on this one. Not terrible, but I guess I'll, I'll have to wait and see if it can hook me. What did you think? Did you read it? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, writer Kenny Porter has now joined the ranks of Daniel Warren Johnson, who, who writes scripts, uh, Jurassic Park, which is the Justice League essentially meets, uh, <laughs> Jurassic, Jurassic World, League. Jurassic yeah. Park. And, uh, now this is, this is like, uh, Justice League meets Transformers, really, as, as I see it, DC Mech. And, you know, it's fun. I mean, this is, this is going to have its audience. I think if you like Jurassic League, you're going to like DC Mech. It, it does a good job of incorporating Justice society history up until world war ii and then of course earth gets invaded by these you know this 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 scouting sort of transformer villain and uh they barely defeat it they lose various members of the justice society and if only one of these powerful robots can can create such destruction they spend the next few generations until present day uh preparing for what they expect to be an alien invasion and uh, this culminates in an alien invasion just when, fortunately, the rocket ship from Krypton carrying Superman arrives and Jor-El and Laura uh, sent their their son, their only begotten son to Earth uh, who arrives on Earth more than prepared to, you know, and he's got his own mech, Kryptonian tech. And so if you're into Transformers and you love just, you love the DC universe, you'll have some fun with this. It's only six issues long. It feels it would probably, uh, you know, I, I, I really love the art. I thought Beldover, Rivas. Baldur yeah. Rivas, yeah. Baldur Rivas is a, what a great name. <laughs> and Mike Spicer on the colors. Uh, this, this really does, uh, I think this is a lot of fun and it's dark side. It, it, it might have a little bit of an animated feel to it. I could see this being a cartoon one day or something, just like I can see Jurassic League maybe being a cartoon, but th- this will have its audience and you, you never know this. I, I, this is an unknown. Um, I, I'm trying to remember. I, I'm Kenny Porter kind of sounds familiar. Do you remember what else he's written? I, but he sounds familiar, but no, I'll, I'll look yeah. it up though. Yeah. Um, Cause yeah, this, I don't think this is his first, yeah, it's um, not his. I don't think it's his first one either. But uh, it's you know he's getting his feet wet and he, he continues to you know uh, I you know it, this is another example of out of continuity and I I'm old school so I'm I'm kind of missing some in continuity stories at, at DC. But I understand why DC is doing this. They're trying to attract. I guess they're trying to cater to different and more different audience and a ver- variety of audiences. So it will hopefully attract the audience that they're looking for. Looks like he's done a book called, well, actually, hold on. That says 2022. I don't know that it's come out. Uh, there's super, uh, Superboy, The Man of Tomorrow. Um, oh, that, that was the winner for 
this year's round robin. So that's that's coming. Cool. Uh, he has good for him a story in uh, New Year's Evil, which was the um, holiday anthology from 2019. He had an antholo- uh, anthology story in Dog Days of Summer. Uh, he's had done a backup in The Flash, DC Mech, story in Batman Urban Legends, uh, and he had a story in the Are You Afraid of Dark Side Halloween anthology. So, yeah, it seems like he's done most, mostly anthology stuff um, for DC. So, all right. Uh, well, let's move on. Uh, curious your thoughts on this one. Speaking of Danny, uh, she actually had two DC books this week. Uh, Sandman Universe Nightmare Country. We're up to issue number four, written by James Tynan. Lissandro Esterin does the majority of the art. Patricio Del Pesh on colors. Simon Bolin on letters. Um, and then pages 11 through 14, Danny is the guest artist for that with colors by Tamara Bonvillan. Um so yeah, this story is getting to be interesting. What do you think? Uh, th- this is I. I hate to say this, but I'll just let you talk on it. I I never had an opportunity to read this. I never had enough time to to fully read this. It's it's I, I I've been loving this series so far, but I missed reading this issue. Yeah, so it's starting to come together. We find out why Mister Teague is being nice to the uh, the various college students, if you will. Uh, we find out what his uh, motives are, and the, I find that the um, the relationship between the, these supposed friends, uh, you know, Robbie, he he really has. I guess the word is contempt for um, you know, for this girl that that for some reason has attracted all these monsters if you will. Um, and it's, he, I mean, he, he basically says to Robbie, he's like, you know, you, you're some kind of friend, like why he, he doesn't really understand. And I, I do find that that to be interesting because it, it's in a way Teague is kind of our, our point of view character into the relationship that they have. But at the same time, he's got his own motivations as well. So he's not somebody that I think we're supposed to completely relate to. And, and that's sort of, that's sort of true for what happens throughout the entire story. Everybody is a POV character in, in a way like Teague in trying to determine, you know, what's going on, why uh, agony and, uh, and ecstasy are doing what they're doing. Um, you know, we, we haven't really figured out why or, or who is pulling the strings behind agony and ecstasy, why they're after this, uh, this girl, this artist Flynn. Um, so that's interesting. And then from, from the perspective of who Flynn is, you know, she's always had these nightmares. She's always had her art where she, puts these horrific things that she sees in her dreams, you know, down in, in, in paper, but then, yeah, her relationship with Robbie, he's, he's our point, point of view character sometimes in terms of him, you know, calling a spade a spade and, and looking at Flynn and going, you're just a, like, I don't know what's wrong with you. Why are you, the, you know, the way that you are, he's so skeptical of anything supernatural going on. Um, but then at the same time, it's like you don't completely want to identify with him because he is kind of a dick. 
when it comes to his relationship with Flynn, even though they're supposed to be friends. So it, it's such an interesting dynamic. You you can sort of uh, identify with all three of these characters, but they all have something that's sort of inherently terrible about them. Maybe less so with Flynn, nothing inherently terrible, but kind of where she falls apart for me is like the choices she makes. You know, it's like watching somebody in a horror movie. Uh, there's that Geico commercial that makes fun of it, right? Where the, the people are running from the house and there's like a car that's already started with the doors open and they're like, let's get in the running car. And they're like, no, let's go hide behind the wall of chainsaws. You know, Flynn's <laughs> kind of like that. She makes these terrible deci- decisions that you don't, you know, understand. And it's part of maybe her pathos and, and what's in her head. So yeah, th- this story has sucked me in. I wasn't necessarily a, a fan of it to start, um, but it's just so intriguing. And like I said, we do find out what Teague is all about. Cause you, you know, he obviously has this, what seems to be hinted at a sexual relationship with Mr. Teague. Um, and then, you know, Flynn, Flynn shows up and the people are after her and her dorm has been burned down and, you know, agony and ecstasy going after her to kill her or whatnot. Um, and Teague kind of rescuing them and you never know what his motivation is. Um, never really understand it. He's just sort of mysterious. And here we find out that, He's he's here. He is like this billionaire, and uh, he's always been fascinated by, you know, the power behind the power, um, death, and and all those sort of things. And when he when he takes the two into his helicopter and flies to this compound, I guess is the best way to put it. And he he kind of distracts Robbie, tells Robbie to go grab wine or whatever from the wine cellar, and then takes Flynn down to this, um, what he calls his chamber of horrors. Um, and Flynn's down there looking around. She's like, well, it's just a refrigerator. I mean, there's tons of stuff. Like it's huge. It's huge. There's a car. There's, it's a Volkswagen Beetle. I'm sure that the, uh, intention there is it's, um, uh, Ted Bundy's car. Um, <laughs> he was infamously, you know, pulled over for a broken taillight, uh, in this Volkswagen Beetle. Um, uh, but anyway, she's like, well, it's just a fridge. He goes, oh, that's Jeffrey Dahmer's fridge. It had three severed human heads. And so, you know, it, he just talks about collecting all this stuff that is tangentially related to serial killers and death and kind of the monstrous intent of humanity or, or monstrous turns of, of humanity at various times. And he just wants to be c- closer to it in a way because he, he feels that there's power there. Um, and so he, he says at the end, he's like, yeah, rather than chasing the, the power trying to be noticed by whatever it is, the supernatural, the Corinthian, uh, ag- agony and ecstasy, whatever are the manifestations of, of evil, which are powerful. He knew he wasn't necessarily quote unquote marked by it. Um, but always wanted to have the, the opportunity to, to amass more power by, um, by interacting with it. And so he concocted, which is a pretty genius plan. He's like, find the people that are marked, find, in this case, Flynn, and capture her, <laughs> right? You've got what these powers that he's he wants to uh, tap into. He's got what they, he's got something they want. That leaves him in a, in a position to, to negotiate. And it's interesting because Agony and Ecstasy are like, well, why don't we just kill you? Why don't we want to negotiate? Well... It's sort of time is of the essence, and so they, they do make a deal. And I, and I like that, too, that Tynan takes the time to get some back and forth. So um, Ecstasy says, 
you know, we don't, we don't really have time, but we'll answer three questions. And Teague comes back with three questions from each of you. And Agony comes back with, okay, you can ask each of us three questions, but we get to decline to answer one each. So he ends up with four questions. We don't know what the questions are yet, but uh, in exchange, he's going to turn over Flynn to these monstrous people. But before any of that can happen, the Corinthian shows up and he's got his bladed weapons. And we do find out a little bit about who the Corinthian was before he died. Apparently he was one of these serial killers. Um, and so, yeah, it really seems like the, the shit's about to hit the fan in, in the next issue. So interesting play and and the i think what's most interesting is the structure the the character work that tynan has done with these characters where you can look at each of them in a way as a point of view character but you really wouldn't want to be any of them because they're all deeply flawed um beyond just normal human flaws you know whether it's flynn's i don't know lack of common sense or robbie's uh kind of immorality when it comes to friend or, you know, disloyalty, we'll say when it comes to friendship or, or Teague's complete lack of morality, uh, and, and, <laughs> you know, thirst for power, if you will. Uh, and obviously the artwork, um, by Lissandro Esterin has been fantastic throughout in terms of, uh, capturing the, the feel of the story. So, uh, all right. Well, Next up, we have Superman Space Age Book One. This has been highly anticipated. It's from writer Mark Russell. We've got Mike Allred as the artist. His wife, Laura, does the colors. Dave Sharp's on letters. Uh, and this was a bigger book than I expected. I think this is three parts, but this first part is like 90 pages almost. Um, so a lot more to come with this. What did you think? Uh, there's one line in this comic book that encapsulates not only the comic book, but the way I feel about DC Comics in general at the moment. And that is uh, at one point, Jonathan Kent says to his son, Clark Kent, he says, hope is what we call the stu- is is what we call the stupidity we need. <laughs> and that's what it is, because I we, I always hold out hope. You and I have uh, sounded like broken records uh, in one period of time talking about we want hope. We want more hope. And uh, but uh uh, I will say that, uh, you know, this, this is the space age. Uh, it says it right on the cover. Will the sixties bring the end of the world? Uh, this is Mark Russell being Mark Russell. It's, uh, if you like his political satire, he, inter- he we got the 1960s JFK. We got the space race. We got Nixon. We got, we got all, uh, we got Martin Luther King. Uh, we've got that tied in with, uh, Lex Luthor and Bruce Wayne in a bidding war, uh, with respect to the American government to sell them. Bruce Wayne wants to sell them, uh, armor for their soldiers and armor clothes for their soldiers. And Lex Luthor wants to sell nuclear weapons. And, we have uh, we have a young Clark Kent coming into his own as a young reporter trying to find his way and to, as Superman. We even have Pariah of all people of the original Crisis showing up, talking to Clark Kent, talking talking to Clark Kent in 1965, telling him about the end of the world that will take place in approximately 1985, which we readers, longtime readers, know is the original Crisis on Infinite Earths. You know, it's funny. I would almost think this could have a dark crisis on it, a dark, dark crisis title moniker on it because it, it harkens back to the original crisis. What I like about this story is that this is a story of, of a Superman, one iteration of Superman somewhere in the original, uh, inf- infinity of Earths having an adventure and, 
and basically living a, a life where he grows up, he falls in love with Lois Lane, they have a child together. There's a beautiful image at the beginning of this comic where Superman, we, uh, you, you can tell it's, a, it's the end of the world and he's in the fortress and he, he, you know, he basically spends his last moments as the crisis destroys his world. He spends his last moments with his family, with Lois and his son, Jonathan, as they, as, and they're surrounded by pictures of their life together. And, and then it basically, the rest of the story presumably is how we got there. How did we get to the end of the world here? And I thought this was, uh, I, I actually thought this was nice. Now, it, it's a very, if I got one criticism, well, let me talk about what I like about it. The, the compliment is that I like the references to JFK and the, the incorporation of John F. Kennedy, of Martin Luther King. And you, you really get a sense that this is America from 1963 all the way up largely to present day. If I was, if I was, and also we get some really good, interesting callbacks in John and Clark Kent's father during the war years, during, during World War II. We learned that, uh, Jonathan Kent, uh, grandfather, Jonathan Kent, uh, he basically, and he, he killed a man in the war and he ended up killing a young, a young boy. And, uh, we, we got some sort of poignant memories for a Jonathan Kent, which were meant to convey a message to Clark Kent. Uh, unfortunately, if, uh, I could tell, I want to give compliments to Mark Russell because I think he puts in the legwork where he's trying really hard. This felt a lot like his Fantastic Four life story that he wrote. And I found that when he wrote Life Story Fantastic Four, I found that it was sort of by the numbers and not didn't quite have enough high points. In other words, he just he he checked the boxes off of hype of very specific events in the Fantastic Four history, but nothing really hit. And I find that's what's happened here. He he makes the attempt, but Nothing's really new here. He's not really saying anything new about Superman. Even his, even his interactions, the history isn't substantially different. The only difference is that Lois Lane, uh, breaks, uh, breaks the news on the assassination. Lois Lane, uh, is, is also jailed with Martin Luther King. Lois Lane is, is always at the center of things, but she's just at the center of things. It doesn't really change history in an interesting way. It's just, it just happens and it, it sort of plods along. Again, it's not not bad. It's I think it's interesting. I think this will make a nice read, especially if you're new readers of Superman and what have you. I got kind of a quasi-Silver Age feel to it. And so I enjoyed it for what it was. Uh, I really like the art. I'm a fan of Michael Allred. Um, I'm a huge fan of his X-Force, <laughs> his original X-Force series. Uh, I'm not, I'm not cl- presently collecting excellence uh, that he's writing for Marvel, but I'll probably pick that up in trade. But... I thought this was well done. I, I like the artistic style. I love the sixties and the seventies and I, 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 you know, so I, I like the historical feel to it. So the nostalgia type feel to it. So I'd be curious to know what your view is on it. Well, I have to admit to not being a Mike Allred fan, uh, which I know is a bit sacrilege. And let me, let me just say that I've met Mike and his wife on several occasions and they are lovely people. And I really like them and they have a passion for comics and creating art and they're just awesome. And I, I wish that I liked his aesthetic more, but I have always found his lines to be, uh, he uses very heavy line weights and I've always felt that it, um, it gives this sort of solidity to his art where that things don't flow. It feels very static. 
Um, now that being said, I've always appreciated his sense of storytelling. And, um, I think he's a fantastic storytelling, uh, both in terms of what he shows and his transition from panel to panel where he chooses to put the camera and whatnot. So, you know, I obviously have a respect for him and I and know he has his fans. I've just never been one of them. And it all comes down to line weight for me. Um, so that being said, I do agree with you. I think it was an astute observation, the whole fantastic four life story, um, which, you know, pulled in real world events and this does as well. So I did appreciate that. And yeah, it certainly had its, Silver Age feel. So for the most part, I liked it. I love seeing Pariah. I, I love the references, uh, especially in the beginning, as you mentioned, him spending the last moments with his family. It's 1985. Uh, interesting that he chose to put John in there because the pre-crisis Superman, you know, never had a, a child, um, wasn't married to Lois for that matter. So that was an interesting choice as well. Um, the only parts that I didn't like, it was almost like a little bit of the, uh, the man of steel, Paul Kent here, you know, saying maybe you shouldn't be out there. You know, maybe the world's not ready. Um, so I, I didn't necessarily like that aspect. And, you know, that's a, that's a choice Mark Russell's making. And, you know, it, it does allow things to happen to play out the way that he wants them to, which is basically uh, Clark going to Metropolis completely untrained and, you know, spending years learning from uh, his father, Jorel in the fortress of solitude in secret. And so it, you know, I, I understand why he made that choice, but I, I just, I didn't like it. Any, anytime I get a characterization of Paul Kent that reminds me of that horrible movie and horrible characterization, it's going to, you know, bother me because which movie Superman, the original, no man, man, no, man of steel. Oh, man of steel. <laughs> okay. That, that, that pocket that, you know, was telling Superman to hide and this pocket, right. which is not, not exactly in the same way, not as overt <clears throat> as the, the Zack Snyder pocket, but the result is the same. He's, he's saying, yeah, you should stay out of it. And I, I didn't, I didn't like that. But again, Based on the narrative and what Marco Russell was going for, you know, I understand why he made that made that decision. So, uh, yeah, this is definitely a, a different take, a different, you know, version. We get a, a different um, a different Batman, you know, different Bruce Wayne, a different uh, Lex Luthor, but ultimately they're all they're close enough to be recognizable. I will say that um, it's certainly kind of along the same choice of having a pocket that's basically telling Superman to hide. We get a Hal Jordan who actually shoots down Abe and Sir's plane. So I guess the argument could be made. Like, did he, is he a murderer? <laughs> I mean, he, he kills, he kills Abe and Sir. He shoots him down. And as a direct result, Abe and Sir dies. But at least to Mark Russell's credit, um, when Aben Sir says, "Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm dying. I, no time to find a replacement. You have to take this ring through which all our power flows." And Hal Jordan says, "I'm not worthy." Aben Sir's like, "No, but you're, you're not worthy. But you're here." <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, this guy just killed you, and you're giving him his ring. So you know, there are, there are a few things like that where I kind of had to, to shake my head a little bit. Um, but ultimately, by the end of the story, we looks like you know, in the next one, we're gonna get. Um, 
the Justice League come together. We see Batman, we see Green Lantern, we see Flash and Wonder Woman, uh, who we saw, we saw all of them in this issue, uh, except for Flash. Um, but yeah, this Hal, Hal Jordan, not exactly heroic. Um, Wonder Woman showed up to address the UN after the near nuclear war, um, happened. So, you know, she, th- that, th- that event did spur the Amazons to realize, Hey, we're part of this world. We can't hide anymore. A little curious. So we didn't see Aquaman, uh, but I imagine he'll probably be, be coming. So yeah. Um, like you said, it definitely has a little bit of that life story feel. And again, I think a lot of it has to do with bringing in real events. So Mark Russell is a, a good choice for that. Um, but there were just those few minor things where I, I just kind of, and they stood out to me so much based on the fact that it, it, it's so different from what we've seen before, you know, a, a mon pa Kent that are a little more protective that, you know, aren't maybe aren't as overt about, yeah, you need to do whatever you can to make the world a better place. They're a little more, well, you got to hang back and wait till the time is right. So that was a little off to me. And then, yeah, Hal Jordan killing Abe and Sir. I, I just, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I can get behind that choice. Right. Um, maybe he just did it for, um, for reasons of convenience. I'm not, I'm not really sure. I don't know why you couldn't have had an, you, you, there was other fighter pilots there. You could have had somebody other than Hal. You could have had it where another fighter pilot in Hal's squadron panicked and shot him down with Hal going, no, we don't even know that they're necessarily an enemy. It seems like a, I mean, it wouldn't have taken up that much more space, right? Um, yeah. But I don't know. Maybe he was just trying to show that this Hal Jordan is is flawed, like we all are in a way. So, yeah. But all in all, pretty good. Um, again, the storytelling visually by Mike Allred is is pretty strong, uh, even if I'm not a fan of the aesthetic. Um, but my favorite was Clark, um, and that that's the other part that I don't think either of us mentioned. You did mention Lois getting the scoop on the JFK assassination, not because Perry chose her. She was on what they call the kooks and cranks beat going and talking to (laughs) various people. Again, this is the sixties. So she's in Dallas to talk to some woman that has psychic cats and being (laughs) after, and again, this, you know, really happened. All the planes got grounded after the assassination there was no air travel. And so she was there in Dallas and ended up writing this, the story for the daily planet and won the Pulitzer prize for it. And when Clark shows up, he gets the kooks and cranks beat as Lois is promoted, obviously uh, having just, you know, won this award for the story that she wrote about JFK's assassination, which eventually leads Clark to a bar <laughs> to meet this guy, Pariah who has some vision of the future. And, you know, it's the, it's the pariah we all know, the pariah that's in the pages of um, Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths right now. And so I always appreciate when pariah shows up because I'm a big <laughs> fan of that character. So uh, anyway, let's move on. Up next, we have Deathstroke Incorporated number 11. This is from the writer Ed Brisson, art by Dexter Soy, colors by Veronica Gandini, letters by Steve Wands. I did very, very briefly get to see Ed at San Diego. It was good to see him. Um, and I didn't even get a chance to talk to him about Deathstroke. We talked about some of his other uh, creator-owned stuff. But um, much like I predicted, the action really ramped up in this second issue, this year one part two. I know you weren't a big fan of going to a year one uh, Deathstroke story, um, 
but I, I'm I'm enjoying this. And we see him, and, and I said about the first issue that we see Slade making the choices he feels like he has to make. Yes, he's somewhat of a bastard. Yes, he's neglecting his family. Yes, he's a terrible father. But you, and as much as you see him and know he's making these mistakes and making these bad decisions, you also understand that in a way, they're not really choices. They're sort of the path he's forced down thanks to the experiments that were done on him, you know, and how it, it, these ACTH experiments, um, you know, changed him fundamentally, changed the way that his body and his brain chemistry works, which in turn, you know, makes him more aggressive, makes him, you know, his body produce more adrenaline and, and sort of forces him. So it does give a little bit of a different shift uh, in perspective on who Slate is and, you know, why he's such a dick, um, why he's such a terrible father, you know, makes him a little bit more of a tragic figure. And I think in that way, it makes him a little more relatable, maybe a little more sympathetic. Um, but at the end of the day, we read just Deathstroke because we want action. And um, this issue certainly sets up some action going forward. Um, the Dexter Soy art, I, I thought it was interesting. It was the line work here. It's a little finer than we've seen from Soy in the past. Um which gives a little bit of a softer feel to the art, which I don't know that it, it's the my favorite Dexter Soy. Uh, you know, like I think back to when he was doing um, Red Hood and what was it? Red? What was the name of the Fifty Two? Because I know it was, it was Artemis and Bizarro. Red oh my God, and Red Hood and the Outlaws. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, when he was doing that for Rebirth. Uh, the line weights were a, a little thicker, but he still has the same sense of, um, you know, storytelling and, and whatever. And the other th- thing that, the, that they did with this art, that was a choice. I think that helps it feel a little bit softer. And I, I'm thinking that the reason they're doing this is because this is a flashback story. <clears throat> I could be wrong, but there's no, I don't know if you noticed, there's no panel borders, right? So you get at least not in our digital copy. So you get the white of the comic page and then you just have the, the art you know, and typically there's a black line or, you know, around the rectangle or whatever shape the panel is that separates it from the next panel. You don't get that here. There's no panel border. So again, it, it just gives the art a little bit of a, a softer feel, which I thought was an, uh, an interesting choice, but, uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing more action because, uh, green arrow shows up on the last page, um, as slate is about to, complete his contract is he's about to take out this doctor that in his own words, you know, tortured him. Um, so yeah, I, I'm really enjoying this. I'm enjoying the take that Ed Brisson is bringing to Slade. So, uh, but yeah, I know you weren't necessarily a big fan of the first issue. what do you think of this one? Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not in the mood for a Slade Wilson year one story. However, aside from that, it, it is a good one. And, and frankly, I think for, for fans that want to get, uh, you know, for fans who've not read a lot of Slade Wilson, Deathstroke, it's probably been a while. It's those of us who are fans of Deathstroke. We've read so many issues of his that we kind of know his backstory. But it's kind of nice to have have one cohesive story all in you know whatever all in whatever five or six issues that this is going to be in. And so I guess it's it, it's okay. I will say this: it's interesting that you have an obs- I have you had the observation reading this that that there was some sympathy. You had some sympathy for Slade Wilson. I find it very interesting that you interpreted 
him being on this drug or these experiments that they were having an impact on his personality, sort of making him be a jerk of a father. I kind of got the impression that he's always been a jerk and that he's just naturally a jerk of a father. Uh, so, but, so, uh, and I'm not saying you're wrong. You might very well be right. You're causing me to sort of reread this now and sort of like question, well, maybe it is as a res- maybe his mindset is as a result of his, of him being experimented upon because he does have a lot of introspection in this issue. Uh, Ed Brisson does a good job doing that. Uh, Maybe it's my own bias of the characters. I've always thought of Slade Wilson. I personally have always thought of him and liked him kind of like a jerk. I've never, I've never thought of him as being a good father really ever. He's always somebody who struggles with it. (laughs) And so this, this actually made sense to me that, he was, I found him to be like a real jerk. He tells his young boy, Grant, not, you know, you know, you know, don't cry. Men don't cry. And he's talking to a, he's talking to, it looks like he's talking to a three-year-old, four-year-old telling his kid not to cry. And his, all his kid is doing is missing him. And so Ed Brisson has done a good job here of, well, frankly, if you and I can maybe have slightly different interpretations of that, I think Ed Brisson's doing his job because he's making us sort of like question, well, who is Slade Wilson really? You know, is it is this a result of of his of the surgeries he went under or is this who he really is? At the same time, Slade is questioning it as well. So I think that works well here. And I like ultimately I like the fact that he's being paid a million dollars to sort of kill the very doctor who made him a super soldier to begin with. And and so that's that's his first big hit. And of course, the one superhero who's going to try to stop him from doing that at the end is 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 Green Arrow, which is interesting because Green Arrow, ever since that Identity Crisis series where Green Arrow takes out uh, uh, Slade Wilson's eye, uh, infamous, famously, uh, I think a lot of people like the 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 arch rivalry between Deathstroke and Green Arrow, and so I think it's a good idea. To, in in sort of like this Deathstroke year one or or origin story to have Green Arrow be there from the beginning, I think that's uh, I think that's well done and and well played, and so even though you know even though I would have preferred not to have this, the fact that it's here, it's not it's it's it, it's well written and I think for newcomers to to Deathstroke, uh, I think I think. I think you're in for this is a lot of fun. And Dexter Soy's art is fantastic. I mean, he's a great artist. So, you know, what's not to like? Yeah. And, and I get your point. I don't, and I don't think Slade's ever been a good father, but here's the thing. He doesn't have the opportunity to, to ever question or to grow into the role. Like, obviously he's a soldier. He's always been a soldier. You know, that was talked about in the first issue. I'm basing the change in, you know, more aggressive, whatever on what we were told in the first issue where he couldn't, he literally couldn't stay home once he finally recovered from the experiments. He went out and, you know, picked bar fights with increasingly bigger and bigger <laughs> uh, amounts of people to fight against till he was fighting against a dozen guys all at once. Um, because he, he, you know, he kind of felt like his brain was on fire and unless he, he just craved that action. So I, I think, yeah, he was a, a young father and, you know, nobody really knows how to do it until you're until you're in that situation and you become a parent and you kind of grow into it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he wasn't gr- inherently great at it. Some people are better at it when they start out than others, but you know, not very long after he comes home with a very young child, he's a part of this experiment spends, you know, months recovering from it. And then is, is different is fundamental has had his body fundamentally altered. So he never, it's like he never had the chance 
to learn how to be a, a good father. And he may never have been one anyway, because as we all know, there are people that never figure it out. There are people that are, you know, that just never get it, you know, that are toxic, that are, yeah, men don't yeah. cry sort of uh, <laughs> thing. And, and the other thing we have to think about is the generation Slade is from, you know, no, it's always a sliding timeline in DC comics. But when you talk about, uh, you know, if we go back to the original Slade, um, it would be somebody who would, you know, fought in Vietnam or, or what have you. So certainly of that generation where things were a little more masculine, you know, maybe you'd say toxic, toxically. So in terms of, yeah, you don't show your feelings, you don't cry, you know, more of a macho type mindset um, coming out of the fifties and sixties. So, uh, mm-hmm. all right, well, let's move on. We've next up, we have the swamp thing. Number 15 from a writer, Rom V. Mike Perkins is the artist. Mike Spicer on colors. Aditya Bidikar on letters. This is Armageddon part one. We see the power of the Swamp Thing now that he has uh, the green uh, willpower of uh, the green spectrum of uh, of lantern energy. So what would you think? Uh, this is uh, – he, he, Ram V is really he, – he's – he keeps beating that same theme of uh, bad ideas versus good ideas. And um, my daughter is coming up to kiss me goodnight. And uh, <laughs> she's behind my green screen. <laughs> Just a moment. There you go. Goodnight. Okay. See, now speaking of good ideas, that was a good idea what I just did. Uh, and, uh, it's a good idea for people to get on board with Swamp Thing. I've been enjoying it. Uh, we talked, Ram V, of course, started off as Detective Comics this week. This, uh, he can be exposition heavy and Ram V, he's a, he's always good for a good theme and I'm a sucker for a good metaphor and he's ripe with them and he's really focusing on, on, on ideas here. And Swamp Thing, uh, ends up, uh, confronting this, this sort of botanical uh, space invasion by like botanical spores and Green Lantern Hal Jordan gives him the power of the Green Lantern to sort of fight them off and he actually talks to his brother Jacob and he wants his brother Jacob's help and it's again he's, he uh, he Levi as Swamp Thing tries to convey the idea of the wisdom of trees versus and the will of man uh, he, he's experienced both and Levi understands he, he, he explains to his brother Jacob that that I finally understand our father's lesson. What our father was trying to tell us is that, you know, the important thing is that you you essentially you have to endure uh, and that, you know, we, we can defeat the mach- machines. But the 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 green and the, and the machines, it's all part of the cycle of life. And, and the importance is is to survive. It, you know, that's the most important thing. It's it's to endure. And um, and again, it's. You know, Ramvi, I think I'd be saying this is issue. There's only one issue left from this, right? And I, and I think it's appropriate because I think he's really sort of beat the idea to death a little bit. But again, I like it, but we're due for an ending. Fortunately, we got one issue left and this will be a nice ending, I think, because ultimately it's going to be Ram V uh, with, again, fantastic art by Mike Perkins, Mike Perkins on the art the, is, you know, the, the arts just, you know, throughout this is, is really good. I mean, the, uh, I mean, just, just really. This is called Armageddon Part One. The the art here is just. Uh, I mean, if if you've been on board so far, I mean, you, you like the Mark per- Mike Perkins art and the uh, Spicer on the Mike Spicer on the colors, and uh, like just absolutely gorgeous art. And again, 
this is about the, those themes of the, the of nature versus machines versus cities versus the country versus you can you know versus technology and how those two interact and and the decisions we make it all comes down to the choices we make the good ideas versus the bad ideas we have the choice we can always choose a better idea and that's what Ram V is trying to ram home here uh, that, you know, that we can we can use our imagination and the lim- and if it's not just the limits of our imagination can or is what makes humanity stand out from other life forms is our capacity to dream, our capacity to imagine. And no matter how bad things are, as long as we can imagine something better, that's an idea worth embracing. And it's and it's ultimately what can save us. And I'm not, you know, literally, if I sound melodramatic, Ram V sounds melodramatic in his narration and his exposition. And so uh, some people actually get a little, little frustrated with that. I like it because at least I, I can feel good inside after after I read a Swamp Thing comic, generally speaking, because throughout all the bleakness, there really is a great sense of hope. And in this case, a hell of a lot of willpower, thanks to Hell Jordan Green Lantern. So what do you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm liking the whole idea of synthesizing Swamp Thing's powers, you know, the power of the green with the Green Lantern energy. Uh, I like that. I like how... Ramvi is really taking Levi Kamei on, on a on a real journey here. I wasn't maybe the biggest fan. I mean, first of all, I'm not the biggest Swamp Thing fan anyway. Um, and I wasn't sure if I liked this idea of having somebody other than Alec Holland. Um, but I, you know, I think maybe it was it it was time. Uh, and we didn't know how long that was going to last. And even through the course of the series, we've seen. Alec Holland or, or Levi Kamei rather lose the, the endorsement of the parliament of trees, if you will. And his brother, Jacob get the power of it. And sorry, my dogs are going crazy. This second here. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it's been a, a fun ride, but I, I do agree with you. I think it's time to, to wrap it up. Um, and this whole idea of, of Trinity and how she's going to fit into it is going to be interesting. And it's going to be interesting how everything comes together in the end of, in terms of does Levi Kamei get the power of the green back? Does he retain the green lantern energy? Like how does it all come together and what sort of um, agreement will the parliament of the machines and the parliament of the trees come to you know this idea of technology because we've only ever had three right we've had the the red and the black and the green so the blood and the rot and i guess the natural world and i like that rombies has introduced this idea of the parliament of machines which is sort of you could think of it as man's world or technology or advancement or you know technological advancement or or whatever um so it seems like there's going to be four parliaments going forward. So that'll be interesting to see how that remains as well. And then ultimately, you know, this, uh, this parasite, um, that has sort of tempted the, the parliament of the machines in a way. Um, and, and Swamp Thing's pushing, pushing back against that, you know, saying, you know, he, he, in the story, he, 
interweaves himself into the the machine, the machinery itself, and says, you know, if you if you allow this war to happen between the you know the natural world and and the world of technology, you're going to destroy all of all of the earth. Like none of us survive <laughs> if the earth itself is is destroyed. So in a way, it's sort of a metaphor for the fact that we're all in it together. You know, we all live in this planet. Technology exists. A natural world exists. And there, you have to find a balance between the two rather than being at war. Don't listen to these ideas of this this parasite that just wants to feed on whatever it can. So how does that play out in terms of this Trinity character and, you know, who is she exactly? What does she embody? Is it? you know, a metaphor for, you know, a, a greater power that can come and save us if we believe in it. Like what, what exactly is, is going on with Trinity and how will she possibly destroy this, this false prophet as, uh, as Levi refers to this parasitical being, um, who I, I really, <laughs> I really like the way Mike Perkins draws him. He looks like, uh, he almost looks like uh, the character from uh, that horror franchise, Phantasm, you know, with the floating silver balls. Um, but, he's, <laughs> but he's got he's got dark hair instead of white hair. I think I want to say that character's name is the Undertaker, but I could be wrong. It's been a long time since I've seen any of those movies, but yeah, I mean, this is something um, that has been really interesting, and uh, I've said it a lot. I haven't read a lot of Swamp Thing. Um, but I've been hooked on this one and you're right about the colors too. Mike Spicer. I mean, the, the colors in this are so vibrant. They really pop off the page. So one issue to go. So we'll see how it all finishes up. Yeah. All right. Up next, we have Harley Quinn, number 17 written by Stephanie Phillips, art by Riley Rosmo colors by Yvonne Placentia letters by annual design. This is the verdict part five. We get the resolution of this story. Um, this was entertaining. We've talked a lot about how Riley Rosmo's art has evolved, even though it's still very stylistic, how it's kind of evolved. Uh, I think it does suit this story and the aesthetic of Harley that Stephanie Phillips established very, very well. Um, and in a way, it, this is Harley sort of pushing back against the, the judgments that people have, the prejudices that people have. But I, I sort of feel like those judgments and prejudices are, are sort of earned, right? I mean, she did make some terrible choices <laughs> when she was with the Joker. Uh, but Stephanie Phillips brings her almost full cir- circle here at the end with Mayor Nakano, um, you know, apologizing to her personally. But then because Harley's Harley, you know, she she can't just accept it graciously. She's got to say, oh, you should listen to these great ideas I have. Like, let's fill all the drinking fountains with espresso and make have ice cream Thursdays, except every day's Thursday and rename streets after me. And, you know, typical Harley uh, insanity, if you will. So I, I think it works on that level. I, but I would be lying if I said, I, I, I wouldn't have liked a little more exploration into the idea of, of Harley not having paid for the mistakes that she's made in the past fully, you know, um, it, it was more than, I would say it was, it was more than lip service. Um, and Harley really did have to give pause, uh, and stop and think about what she's done. Um, but still there weren't a ton of consequences, but 
that's not necessarily unique to <laughs> to Harley Quinn or DC Comics <laughs> or or comics in general. You know, I mean, Jean Grey is still beloved, and look at all the people she killed way more than Harley Quinn when she was Dark <laughs> Phoenix. So, yeah. um, I guess if you just kill them for a while and then bring them back, and it's okay. Uh, and we know we have the death of Harley Quinn coming up, right? Later this year with her anniversary. Yeah, that's celebrate. right. Yeah, it's coming out every two weeks too, I think, bi-weekly, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So maybe, maybe that's DC, DC's way. Well, you see what they did with Jean Grey. Maybe, Har- you know, we just need to kill Harley. And then, you know, the scales will finally be balanced. We'll see. Um, I will say, speaking of that, and I haven't thought about this before, but it would be interesting in that story if – Harley goes to whatever afterlife and has to confront some of the people that she helped uh, or in maybe inadvertently or purposefully or whatever, but in her partnering with the Joker, you know, if she has to actually confront some of those people um, and answer for to them directly for what they did, that might be interesting. So uh, anyway, what do you think of uh, this issue of Harley? Well, this is the final battle between Harley and the verdict. The verdict being revealed to be Samantha, who was actually Kevin's girlfriend. Kevin being Harley Quinn's larger uh, sort of, you know, big bone sidekick with the crazy, uh, you know, image on his on his double chin and in any event there's a great big battle between the verdict and harley quinn and ultimately the verdict ends up going and taking over city hall calling out harley harley comes to city hall defeats the verdict gets as you said an apology from mayor nagano uh and uh uh you know again there's a lot of uh you know harley reflects upon her past i mean you said it and you you actually nailed it. I mean, and it actually, I'm really curious about how, where, where the death of Harley Quinn is going to go because really if, if there was ever a judgment day for Harley Quinn, there are so many iterations of Harley Quinn uh, through the years. She's, she's been a cold-blooded murderer. She's been a psychopath. She's been a beloved, loving uh, lesbian. She's been a l- loving, uh, she's been a victim to the Joker. She's been a bisexual icon. She's different things to so many different groups of people and fans that, you know, how do you embody all those wonderful flaws and terrible flaws at the same time? And I think that's part of the challenge that DC always has. And, you know, it's kind of funny. And and I think artistically, I think Riley Rosmo is actually the embodiment of sort of like the conflicted nature of Harley as a character because he's a very stylistic kind of artist, but his artistic style for Harley is actually, it's certainly not out of sync with the character herself. Uh, it's, it's very different, but then Harley is a very different kind of character. I do want to give a shout out to, uh, Riley Rosmo for one reason. It's because I didn't like Riley Rosmo's art at first that I, I tried to be extra fair to it. And every time I saw it and he, he really has been getting better every issue. And, his originality, there are some panels here. There's one panel in particular that I'm showing. It's got essentially like 16 panels in the background showing, uh, showing Batwoman's lips and, and character and like the, the time, the timer on a bomb. And it's all, it's all faded. And then there's a fight scene between Verdict and Harley Quinn in, uh, you know, f- flowing down the page. And it's, just, I think it's just brilliantly illustrated. And you get a really sense of the kinetic energy and action of what's going on in, in, in this narrative, in this particular issue. And all because of, quite frankly, really good Riley Rosmo art. And I say really good because look, 
It's his style. If you don't like his style, you don't like his style. But I don't think it would be right to call the art bad at all. It's actually very good. It's stylistic. And once you, once you get accustomed to it, I think it, uh, I think this is, he's absolutely made, he's defined himself for this particular era of Harley Quinn. And I like this as an ending. And, well, actually, you never mentioned the ending, uh, Chase, probably because you have an aversion to a particular, you know, Amanda Waller, but this ends with, uh, with Samantha being recruited by Task Force X. Uh, and the tease for next issue is that we're going to be getting Task Force XX, whatever that means. But uh, it looks like uh, this uh, verdict might be recruited by Amanda Waller. Although Amanda Waller doesn't make an appearance in this issue, one has to wonder, you know, what's going to happen next issue. So it's kind of a tease that we're going to get a Task, task Force next issue. So I thought this was well done. I enjoyed this issue more than than the than a couple of ones previous. So all in all, not bad. Yeah, I don't know why we're getting any Amanda Waller. Isn't she on Earth three? <laughs> yeah. Getting way too much of her lately. She's in she's in this next book we're about to talk about, Task Force Z, chapter ten. Now, albeit in this one, it's a flashback uh, where she shows up. So this one's written by Matthew Rosenberg. Eddie Barrows does the pencils. Eber Fur on inks. Adriana Lucas on colors. Rob Lee on letters. Um, yeah, it still hasn't been announced as uh, a limited series, but I wonder how long it's going to go. Um, the big reveal in this one being that, uh, turns out this Bane that we've seen throughout isn't really Bane after all, but another Re- Remember, day. remember you and I, well, I mean, lots of us, uh, lots of us DC fans were complaining that it's out of continuity. It can't, if it's Bane, how can Bane be here and also in the pages of the Joker, you know? And I remember Matthew Rosenberg on Twitter got into some, some some pleasant uh not 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 uh not in a bad way but like some pleasant little back and forth on twitter with matthew rosenberg saying what do you mean is that a continuity so now i know he was having fun with me because i made a comment on twitter that you know i wish uh there was there was you know dc would be more beholden to continuity and i made some issue i made some comment about editorial at dc not uh, just you know, just a little bit of a, maybe, I won't say a pot shop, but I made it like a teasing remark. And, and now I know that Matthew Rosenberg was having fun with me. And so, and that's fine. That's fine because it works because we're getting uh Bane is actually revealed to not be Bane at all, but another character that I'm actually glad to see a return of, despite the fact that it, it brings back memories of Tom King's Batman. <laughs> yeah, Sorry, Jace, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> I didn't mean to no, interrupt you, there. But... No, you go. You go. Well, okay. Well, it's yeah. uh, it's Gotham. It's uh, you know, the, there's Gotham and Gotham Girl. Well, we got Cena Grace uh, telling a uh, telling a Gotham Girl story. Uh, she a back backup story. I think that was in Detective. And uh, now it looks like Gotham is back, and it looks like in this particular issue that this character that we all assumed was Bane for the longest time was in fact the the corpse, the Walking Dead corpse of of Gotham. And I actually kind of like that because I like the character of Gotham, and I think that I will say this that of as divisive as Tom King's Batman run was for for different people, I will say that. I actually like the characters of Gotham and Gotham Girl, and I'm actually glad to see Gotham back. And uh, I'm 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 glad Gotham Girl. We're seeing more of Gotham Girl, and so I really like this development. Now I don't know if Gotham, this Gotham character, if, if he's going to end up being eventually making it back because right now he's still like literally the walk. He's like Walking Dead. He's a he's an animated corpse thanks to to, to the leftover Lazarus resin. But I'd like to see him. Uh, make his way back. Uh, this particular issue, I'm, I'm not going to lie here. I, 
I, I'm a little bit lost this issue. Uh, I have to go back and reread previous issues. I'm not sure how we got to I can't remember exactly. This is the 10th chapter on this. Uh, Matthew Rosenberg is, I know he's pretty good at weaving all these, a lot of interesting, there's a lot of moving parts to this narrative. And I've just plain plump forgot all the different, there's been so many backs, backstabbing going on between all these characters and these different task force teams. And here, basically, it's revealed, I think, that Bloom is one of the masterminds behind it. And Bloom is ultimate's goal is to re- revive Goth- this Gotham. And um, there's a lot of time jumps that I thought were kind of confusing, but the time jumps were put in to sort of build up to the fact that Gotham is the big is 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 the big reveal. But I so um, as much uh, as much as I'm glad to see Gotham sort of that being the big reveal, I I feel I feel <laughs> well. The cynical side of me is I felt a little bit lost this issue, to be honest. I felt I wasn't sure how all this lined up. and But in fairness, I really have to go back and maybe read the previous three issues leading up to this because I – I wasn't sure why why certain characters were doing where they were and the and the time jump sort of threw me a bit. But I know from reading Matthew Rosenberg, I have enough – Matthew Rosenberg's earned my respect and my trust because I, I, I'm still loving him for his work on the Grifter series that we reviewed in Batman Urban Legends. I thought that six issues that he did of the Grifter, the long con, uh, I thought was great. And I thought six – I would have loved for this to have been six issues. I think 12 issues were too many issues for this for this particular Task Force X story, a Z story. But in any event, um, the thinker ends up here and the th- the you know we got the thinker is here peacemaker's in here he he kills <laughs> peacemaker kills a character there's a there, there's there's a lot of humor here uh, the the art here is 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 really good eddie burrow's art is always fantastic a lot of gratuitous violence as you would expect and you know again and of course amanda waller doing what she does best in this case putting uh, mr bloom in his place and um uh yeah so i I'd like to give a little bit of a narrative synopsis, but honestly, I'm not entirely clear what the hell happened other than the fact that all this machinations were leading to, I guess, ultimately trying to resurrect, resurrect, uh, a Gotham. So, so I don't know, maybe you understood it better than I did, but I, I would have to reread this a couple more times and read some, read some of the previous issues. But what do you think? Yeah, it is a complex story and you do have to pay attention or because uh, it, the complexity of the story has grown throughout, right? Like it starts off and it's just Task Force Z and sort of the initial mystery is who's the, who's the person behind it that's calling the, the shots and why does Task Force Z even uh, exist? And then that gets, he gets revealed to be Two Face. And as the story's gone on, it turns out, I mean, really the big bad of this is, is, uh, Mr. Bloom and we don't quite know what he's after other than like you said he's looking to bring gotham back but ultimately why that's the case we don't really know um so that that has yet to be revealed um because we've had task force z we've had task force x and then we we even had the uh task force black or or whatever it is that amanda waller um sent out there so yeah, it, it almost feels like, and it very well may turn out to be, that it's this is more a story about a kind of a political power struggle between Amanda Waller and 
Two Face and um, the Powers Corporation. Um, but ultimately, Mr. Bloom is kind of in the middle of all of it, and he's been manipulating events throughout. So um, I like that take from Matthew Rosenberg. I never really got the sense that the Mr. Bloom character was really fleshed out or used to his full potential in the Scott Snyder run of Batman. And Rosenberg has definitely leveled Bloom up here. So, uh, so I appreciate that, but I feel like this is one of those stories that it's not going to completely make sense until everything is said and done, but I think it'll read fantastic once everything is completed, once the story's done and you go back and, you know, reread it you know, knowing how it turns out in the end. And then you, you'll go back and reread it and it'll be a more rewarding experience because you'll see the hints and the clues that Rosenberg left from the very beginning. So if you're ultimately, if you're a fan of DC villains, you, especially Batman villains, you should be reading this because <laughs> you get, you get Mr. Bloom, you get who you think is Bane turns out to be Gotham. You get KG beast, you get Copperhead. Uh, we even get the thinker in this issue. Um, a little bit too much Amanda Waller in the flashbacks here. Um, but yeah, we're getting, we're getting, you're getting a lot of, of Batman villain and a lot of story and a lot of bang for your buck. Um, the artwork by Eddie Barrows has been fantastic throughout. Um, it's the same art team that has done many spectacular things in the fat in the past. Freedom fighters is one of my favorite things I've ever done. That 12 issue series by uh, written by Robert Venditti. Uh, but if you go back and look at that, that art is a little cleaner, um, but it's also not as visceral of a story as this is with, you know, I mean, let's face it. These are, zo- these are zombie villains at the end of the day. So you would expect it to have a little bit of a, of a darker tone. Um, and I will say, so I, I wasn't necessarily expecting it to be Gotham. I did sort of wonder you know, like you did how Bane could be in this, but you just figure, well, at least if, you know, uh, everything matters, everything counts, everything happens. So whatever just slotted in, <laughs> you know, certainly no lack of DC continuity, um, foibles at this point with the way they're publishing everything. Um, but I guess if I would have paid a little more attention to the third cover, you see Bane there in the background, right next to Gotham. Who's next to Gotham girl. Um, so, but Gotham girl also has long hair, which Claire doesn't anymore. And we also see man bat on that cover as opposed to the Kirk Langstrom that we get in the pages where he's in his human form. So, you know, maybe even if I'd noticed it, maybe I wouldn't have, um, wouldn't have thought anything of it, but yeah, very curious to see how this all plays out and looking forward to going back and doing a big reread, uh, once it's done. So, uh, all right. Up next we have, Part three, book three of Batman One Dark Knight. This is story and art by Jock, letters by Clem Robbins. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we talked about this story and how it uh, feels sort of cl- that classic idea of trying to get somebody from point A to point B when the whole entire city is out to get you. Uh, Sultan Precinct, whatever it is, 37 or 56 or whatever. Um yeah you know, comes to mind uh, where Bruce Willis is trying to get most deaf. I think is the actor is a witness star witness, trying to get him from one precinct to the other. Um, so throughout the series, Jock has done a fantastic job of 
making it feel like, you know, Batman is literally against the whole entire city of Gotham. And that's no, uh, there's no exception in this issue. We do find out why this, this Vasquez person, this politician who's head of, uh, uh, the prisons in Gotham, why she's out to get, um, this prisoner that, that, uh, Batman is trying to, to transport to Blackgate. Um, and it, it makes sense what's going on and, and, you know, why she's out to get him. Um, and she, you know, even, even at the end when she confronts Batman, she thinks she's going to get away with it. So it's kind of nice to see her, um, her get her what's coming to her basically. So, uh, I, I thought it was done very well. And I think m- more than anything, this, uh, this EMP, uh, character and, and seeing the, the redemption and seeing this plan that Vasquez had for him, um, sort of be foiled, you know, like she, she makes some assumptions, you know, she just assumes because Edward hasn't been a part of his son's life, his son who has power similar to him, uh, his son Brody, um, you know, she just assumes that, that Brody's going to feel about him the way she feels about him, you know? And, uh, th- I thought that that moment was a pretty powerful moment when, when Brody says, Oh wait, this is my real father. Like, I, like, why wouldn't I reach out? So in that way, it ends up being a little bit of a hopeful story. Um, and then, yeah, it's, uh, it's great that, that Vasquez <laughs> ends up paying the price, you know, she's like, the end of the day, it's, it's your word against my, you know, the word of uh, Gordon's pet vigilante against the word of the, you know, head of prisons and in, in uh, Gotham. So, you know, who are they going to believe? And then come to find out, uh, Gordon was listening and Batman had, had, you know, patched, uh, patched into the communications for the GCPD. So, uh, they all heard it. So I, I thought it was done really, really well. Um, Again, the, the, the jock artwork helps to, um, it helps to set that sort of claustrophobic, uh, feel where Batman feels trapped as he's trying to move EMP to Blackgate prison. Um, and you know, he's got to do it before the sun comes up because remember EMP, he, he can absorb any sort of energy basically. And, and basically explode like a, like a nuclear bomb. So obviously he can't be out in sunlight cause he would absorb the sunlight. And then once he re- reaches a certain level of energy that he has, uh, absorbed, then he, you know, he, 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 he like explodes energy out. So, um, Batman does what he has to do to, to stop that from happening. But we do know that Edward survived. We do get a glimpse at the end of him being fished out of Gotham, uh, river. Um, so yeah, it, it definitely ties up all the loose ends. There's tons of action. If you like jock art, you're definitely going to love this. Um, it, it ended up being a really satisfying story. So what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I don't have really much to add other than the fact that the art, one thing about jock's art that really stands out, I, I you got the real strong sense of just how absolutely devastating and difficult it was for Batman to the punishment. The, I yeah. mean, Batman, I mean, it, the way that there's one scene that shows Batman's 
mask. It, it almost looks, it's completely destroyed. The pointed ears are practically gone as the pointed. It's just destroyed. He has been through hell and he's been mo- attacked, mobbed, uh, has had the shit kicked out of him. And this is Batman at his, arguably his, his finest precisely because he's, he's got the shit kicked out of him. That's only because he's, I mean, truly his, the, his persistence against overwhelming odds and ultimately to be victorious and, and have the, of course, the, the, the foresight to actually get on tape, ultimately, uh, Vasquez confessing to, to the crime, uh, with Gordon to, to have that, that focus even at the end, despite being, Absolutely exhausted and looking like hell. I mean, it really, really works. And that's, that's, that's what makes this stand out because in essence, the story itself is, a, is somewhat, it's almost kind of predictable. You can kind of see it coming, but at the same time, the art's fantastic and you, and you, you, you just, you're, you're captivated by the visuals and Jock pulls you into the end and you really get a sense that, I mean, you're, you're cheering for Batman as he's, as he's getting punished from, from, it's one relentless obstacle after another. And then, of course, he's got, he's, he, you know, this EMP character is a, he's, Jock does a good job making EMP a very sympathetic character, a character that has killed people before, but unintentionally, because he's got this power that he can't control. He's got a son with a similar power. And I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head how Vasquez completely misunderstands the relationship, the quality of the relationship between a son who loves his dad and a dad who loves his son. She completely misunderstands. She completely thought that the son would want to kill her father. Uh, you know, maybe she was figuring that the apple doesn't fall from the tree, but she it's because Vasquez fundamentally misunderstood Vasquez. Did, oh, pardon me, Vasquez misunderstood uh, EMP and, of course, didn't understand that EMP was not this evil person. And, of course, uh, not surprisingly, his son wasn't either. And so her plan, her plan for vengeance completely fell apart. And the sad part is, is that she lost somebody close to her and that was her motivation. And it's, it's one of the things about Batman villains is that so many of Batman's villains end up being people that were good people that were turned bad because of other Batman villains. <laughs> and, and, and they end up becoming worse than, than the villain they were originally a, a victim of. And it's, it's just, it's, so Jacques did a good job of playing with a Batman trope in terms of a story, but, uh, defining it for himself with his unique artistic style. Yeah. And ultimately Edward EMP, he, uh, he's a very tragic figure. I mean, he's got this power that he can't control. Um, and it causes him pain when it, when it happens. Um, so obviously he hasn't made the best you know choices in life being in gangs and whatnot. And, um, but yeah, his son grew up in that world as well. Um, and even if they didn't know each other that well, uh, and obviously Brody didn't know Edward was his, real father. He thought his dad was this Oscar character is another gang member. Um, yeah, it's, I think Brody sees something of himself in EMP. Uh, and like you, you said, yeah, Vasquez vastly <laughs> misreads the, um, the situation and you give credit to Brody for being, you know, pretty intelligent. He's like, you used me, you tur- wanted to turn me into a weapon, have me kill my own father. Instead, I'm going to take you out, you know, and then Batman kind of, talks him down. Um, I had sort of mixed, I was like, ah, man, maybe she really deserved it. So I'm I, like, I'm glad she didn't get away with it in the end. So, uh, all right, moving on. We have Aquaman number six written by Brandon Thomas and Chuck Brown. Art is by Max Rayner. Colors by Adriana Lucas. Letters by Anne World Design. Uh, I was sort of surprised on this issue um, because <laughs> I was feels- too, yeah. 
Yeah, it feels like the story was over last time, so I wasn't sure why, uh, what else needed to be said. It, it does basically wrap up some loose ends, and there, maybe the biggest loose end is this idea that there are governments of the surface world that believe that retaliation against Atlantis is necessary based on the sleeper agents and the damage and loss of life that's been done. Um, but to Steve Trevor's credit, you know, he doesn't think that, and he's, he, he kind of goes down the list. Um, he doesn't call out any countries by name. They're all kind of having this virtual meeting, if you will. And he's like, well, country number five was responsible for an oil spill that contaminated and killed Atlanteans. Uh, wasn't it your country number four that ignored Atlantean border? Like, basically saying no country is innocent and you know, we need to let the scope, not least of which, because they're still really powerful. They have advanced technology. They have Aquaman on their side, like discretion might be the better part of valor here. And so there's that whole idea while we get to see the reaction to, uh, of, of this news, the surface world news in Atlantis and how it affects uh, the younger generation. Um, We get some character moments between black mana and Jackson I still really mixed feelings, reservations about turning Black Manta into an anti-hero. Um, and then in the end, Aquaman gets called away to help with a, an emergency in the Justice League. And we know that to be um, the fight in Infinite Frontier that then leads into Justice League 75, which uh, results in the death of the Justice League. So that that's something else that was interesting about this issue because it was sort of all wrap up and tying up loose ends and really focusing on politics. And then there was a big shift all of a sudden. Um, and that thus the name of it moment of silence where we see character reactions. Um, and we get what one, two pages of character reactions about the death of the justice league where we don't even have any dialogue. Um, and then when we do get dialogue, it's, uh, it's very minimal uh, as Aquaman uh, or Mira rather has tears in her eyes telling Jackson that she, she knows already about uh, Aquaman being dead. Um, we get a scene with Jackson and Tula where Jackson's holding Andy, little baby Andy and, you know, Tula's reaction. The look on Jackson's face is done very, very well. Um, you know, because Jackson grew up without a dad, Right thought his dad was dead. I don't know if that's better than finding out your dad's black mana. Um, but obviously he can relate to what he thinks Andy's going to go through because again, everybody thinks the justice league is dead. We know, we know the justice League's not dead. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously on a meta level, you know, DC comics is never going to kill a hero or heroes as important as justice league and not bring them back. Then you're not going to kill your cash cow. Um, but yeah, going back to something that was said on the Dark Crisis panel, Joshua Williamson cons- uh, confirming that they're not dead. The way par- Pariah has taken them off the playing field is to trap them in these happiness prisons is what he called them. So your instincts are right on, Rocky, when you were talking about uh, the Tom King Superman story. What's What would Superman's fondest wish be right now to have those missing years of John's life back? Um, so, uh, so anyway... Yeah, just a bit of an uneven issue. Not sure why we needed this because, again, the everything was wrapped up. But if you wanted to tie up loose ends, especially in terms of politically, I guess it's okay. But then that pivot at the end just was very – it just felt strange. 
it felt like to because it had such a political tone and cerebral tone and then it turned to all emotion at the end neither one is uh better or worse than the other um and they both work I just don't know how well they work together so um was that what you were talking about when you said it felt weird also uh yeah it just felt it's, it just felt like it, it this like First of all, here's the irony. This is my favorite issues out of all six of them uh, because I think it's canceled now. Isn't it canceled? This is the final issue. This was yeah, a series. Right. Yeah. And and uh, so this is actually my – this this issue feels like an afterthought, but it's the best issue. And, may, and I ha- I'm compelled to say this. Uh, Steve Trevor, at least Steve Trevor, is, is actually useful in this comic book. He's, he has more agency – in a random issue of Aquaman that he does in the pages of Wonder Woman, where he's fighting vile milk drinkers. (laughs) Uh, Thank you, uh, Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad for that. But uh, I say that with, I say that with love, be it uh, Steve Trevor. It's nice to see you step up to the plate. You're actually doing something useful now, talking to members of the United Nations, explaining to him, explaining to the members of the United Nations, referring to them as country one, two, three, and four, because you don't want to mention the countries by name because you'll probably offend certain there's certain comic book readers that might get offended by that so we've reached a point where we can't even name countries in comic books anymore because we might offend somebody on the internet but maybe i'm reading too much into it i will say this this was uh, i love the art i think max rayner's art here is the best that it's i've seen it yet the art here was exceptional there was art here. I actually even enjoyed, I mean, there's even like a, like a, it looks like a fish, like a fish school bus. It's shaped like a fish and all the, all the, all the Atlantean children are on the school bus and they're, they're, you know, they're watching TV on their little iPads. So Atlantean children have iPads in their, in their fish school bus as they're being taken off to school and delivered to school, you know, hoping that, that the, that the rest of the world isn't going to hold you know, hold Atlantis's actions against it. And it's really weird. Uh, this, this whole, this, this, this whole approach that Brandon Thomas and Chuck Brown as co-writers, what, what were they hoping to get out of this series? Cause it, they, they did it. I will say this, even though I wasn't a fan of the narrative, I thought it was choppy and, and, and it didn't flow very well. It, they very clearly were trying to try. They did, incorporate as a lot of the Atlantean uh, characters, the Black Manta, Jackson Hyde, uh, Tula, uh, uh, Garth, uh, Arthur, Kurt, Mira, Andy. I mean, all the big, I mean, it's, it's right on the cover. And uh, so, you know, clearly they, they, they thought big. They, unfortunately the story, I think for me was just, just a, a miss, but I, I like how they were thinking. And, and at least this was a nice homage at the end here to uh, the fact that, well, I mean, Aquaman is dead for about five minutes, but <laughs> overall, this I'm, I'm I think most people this was a little bit of a misstep this series, but it, and I like you, I want Black Manta to be a bad guy. I don't I don't like him as an antihero either. I it's to me, I mean this this whole antihero kick. I mean, is there is I mean. Mind you, I'm also someone who doesn't believe I didn't, I never bought into the nonsense of the redemption of Superboy Prime because to me, there are certain things that you can't come back from. And, and you know, and genocide is one of them, but you know, I mean, that's just me. But, uh, anyways, we shall move on. <laughs> yeah, 100%. 
Uh, up next, we have Batman Fortress, number three, written by Gary Whitta. Art is by Derek Robertson. Colors by Diego Rodriguez. Letters by Simon Boland. Um, I got to say, before we talk about the book itself, it was kind of funny. I mentioned last time when we reviewed number two um, that I know Gary Whitta. He's, he's done some writing for movies and television. I, I couldn't specifically remember what it was, but I knew it was something big. Uh, but so we dropped a review and uh, Derek Robertson reached out on Twitter. It was, got a big kick out of the fact that we weren't exactly sure who Gary Whitta was. And again, I remember when it first got announced, I looked up Gary Whitta and, you know, he's done, he's done some big things. And then I completely spaced on what it was. So uh, I got to give credit where credit's due. Maybe you guys have heard of this little movie called Rogue One, a Star Wars story. <laughs> uh, yeah, Gary Whitta wrote that, uh, <laughs> book of Eli, which is, a a, a really great, I, I really enjoy that movie, which has a really interesting twist at the end that stars, uh, Denzel Washington, uh, after earth he did he written for star Wars rebels. He's written for walking dead, the final season video game. So yeah, uh, he's done, he's done some big stuff. Yeah. Uh, he's earned so, his cred. <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent has earned his cred. So I apologize to Gary for, uh, yeah, for blowing yeah. that. Uh, I did not know that though. I'm glad, I'm glad you told me that because, uh, I will, you know, because I, you and I have both been defending his work on this title cause I've been enjoying it so far yeah. and it continues with this issue. It's one of the better issues this week, I think. Yeah. And the other thing Gary confirmed, cause he got involved in the conversation as well. The other thing he confirmed and got a big kick out of was me saying that anybody that thought that um, Batman was a, you know, Antifa or whatever, based on the fact he was letting looters yeah. run free is, an, is a total fucking idiot. He got a real kick out of that, too, because it was exactly what I said. Yeah, it was. was. Yeah, he was showing the, the whole point of even mentioning that was showing how big of a threat this invasion is to the point where. Batman is even ignoring things that are going bad things that are happening in Gotham city, you know, his beloved, uh, you know, place of, uh, birth where he does everything to protect Gotham. And that was everything about why he, that it was in there and anything to do with, yeah, uh, anti-conservative or, or whatever, just, and again, just idi idiots. People are just idiots. So anyway, uh, what do you think of this particular issue? Rocky, take it away. Well, uh, now, having said all that, now that we've sang Gary Witter's praises, let me tell you this. This is, this is, I like the first two issues better than this third. I consider this third issue to be more set up than anything else. We know that uh, we've, uh, Batman led the Justice League against the alien invasion, and these, these aliens are looking for Superman. They're, uh, they're, they're, they have a thing against Krypton and Kryptonians. They're looking for Superman. And in this issue, the aliens continue to look for Superman. A cyborg last issue was almost killed. He's being, you know, ba basically Batman has his head. Bruce Wayne is trying to, uh, has literally cyborg's head hooked up to his bat cave, bat computers, trying to get some codes from cyborg because cyborg scanned the alien vessel. So Batman's at a real low point here. He's injured. He's healing from his wounds from, from the second issue. And, uh, you know, he's really trying to figure things out. He, uh, you know, artist, uh, the artist here, uh, 
uh, Robertson does a great job showing Bruce Wayne looks terrible. He's tired. He looks haggard. haggard. Derek Robertson does a really good job artistically rendering a Bruce Wayne that is really exhausted. But yet, despite his physical exhaustion, he still seems to have his 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 intelligence and his brilliance about him as he's trying to figure out how to combat this alien threat. So Batman goes to the Guardians, the Guardians, uh, who the Green Lantern Corps. They're not going to help him. Uh, Batman's very frustrated with them. They give their usual song and dance. Now Batman in this particular iteration understands how Hal Jordan feels because the Guardians are very picky. Sorry, you know, how dare you, Earth? We got other, we have an entire universe to look after. We can't just focus on one planet. Thank you very much, you know. And, uh, Meanwhile, meanwhile, these aliens continued to look for, uh, I guess, look for more things Kryptonian, uh, more things Superman. That leads them to Perry White, to the Daily Planet. Presumably, these aliens have picked up the probably the Kryptonian life force residue of Superman at, in the Daily Planet. Oddly enough, it looks as if Perry White ends up getting, dare I say, killed or turned into sand. I don't know if he's actually really dead or not, but it uh, it, it looks like he's, he's he's down for the count. And meanwhile, Batman is so desperate that the big the big plot turning point here is that in this iteration, that uh, Lex Luthor is the president of the United States in this in this universe. And just just to state the obvious, because a lot of people don't pick up on it. I, I always get a kick out of people who complain that Batman's out of character when, when this is clearly a Batman that's not in the mainstream universe. Be very careful. And I'm guilty of it too at times. Be careful. We, we shouldn't accuse this Batman of acting out of character since this is not the Batman of the mainstream, of our mainstream DC universe. So this Batman has gone to Lex Luthor for help as a last resort, who's president of the United States. And, um, uh, there, there's, I love the dialogue here. I think uh, the dialogue's quite uh, is quite good. Gary Witter, I think he uh, there's humor, there's pathos, there's there is uh, you know Batman being Batman, and you know he's got to make a deal with Lex Luthor to try to figure out how to take out these aliens. And the fact that these aliens are looking for something to do with Superman, well, you know that's going to perk Lex Luthor's interests. And I think this worked. Uh, I think this worked very well. I. I'm a little bit surprised. Um, I was a little bit surprised by the death of uh, Perry White. I thought that was sort of an odd, odd turn of events. But um, so I wonder what's going to come of that. I'm really curious to see where Superman is. What happened to Superman? Is he in the Fortress of Solitude? If he's not there, where is he? And is the Justice League going to make a comeback? Uh, how how did they recover? Because this this issue focused mostly on Batman. And his attempts to try to talk to the Guardians and then ultimately Lex Luthor. And then we saw the, these aliens going around trying to trace the steps, presumably looking for Superman as well. So where is Superman? Is he in hiding? Is Superman preparing? What is he doing? So I think we're, we're asking the right questions here. And this is Gary Wood is doing a really good job here. And, you know, I'm so glad you mentioned that he, he wrote or was one of the writers of Rogue, Star Wars Rogue One. That was an, that was an amazing screenplay. And, uh, uh, Eli, uh, that Denzel Washington movie, I'm assuming is the one you're referring to, the book of Eli. Yep. I quite yep. enjoyed that movie. So, and there was some good misdirection there in that movie, if, if I recall. Mm -hmm. And yep. so, you know, all the more reason I even got more confidence as to where this, where this uh, story might be headed. What'd you think? Yeah, I don't have a lot to add uh, to what you said. Uh, I agree with a lot of it. Um, I, 
personally, this isn't my least favorite. Um, I would say it's as, as I think issue two was the, the standout so far, but to me, this was as good as issue one. It is, you're right though. It is a bit of a setup story, but the other thing that this does, it does a couple things for me. It really solidifies that this is a Batman story. He's, he is on his own, you know, he, he's looking for help anywhere he can get it. And, uh, I, I loved when he tells Alfred to get the, you know, whatever the special communicator, uh, can't remember exactly what they call it, but, uh, and, and Alfred's like, well, you know, is it going to work? You know, the, basically the whole world is under this EMP, um, you know, blackout or, or what have you, uh, what's it called? The Xeno linguistic translation, uh, <laughs> yeah. assistance from the, from the computer for the interstellar transceiver function. Um, he's like, ah, it's not a typical radio it uses tachyon particles, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then he, yeah. Then when Alfred says, "Yeah, you're going to need this translation protocol," and and Batman says, "I don't know. Did we ever teach it to speak uptight space Smurf?" Which is a <laughs> you know really appropriate way to refer to the Guardians of the Galaxy. And it goes like you said about as well as you'd expect with yeah. all the bureaucracy. Which yeah leaves Bruce with nowhere to turn. And right away, um, when he finishes talking to the Guardians, he knows they're not going to help, and he says. Yeah, there's one more person we can reach out to. The last, per- I knew right away it had to be Luther. It has, you know, it just yeah. had to be. And so I wasn't disappointed in in that. Uh, and then the other thing that I'll mention is, as far as Perry White's death, um, yeah, it was a little surprising. I was like, whoa, wait, and really interesting um, visual depiction from Derek Robertson as he gets turned to, yeah, what looks like ash. His cigar is not exactly in an inappropriate place when you get that scene, but just <laughs> you know the the first um, the first shot of it, the first panel where he's sort of half disintegrated from Derek Robertson, I thought was was pretty interesting. But the thing that it does, as shocking as it is to see a beloved character like Perry White die, is it once again reestablishes the consequences that they're they're facing. Like these three aliens that are searching for Superman and believe that he has to pay for some perceived crimes that the house of L has committed. Um, yeah, they're not messing around. So, uh, I, I think Gary would, establishes that really, really well. So yeah, I agree with, I agree with what you said about him being a talented writer and doing a fantastic job with, with, uh, the dialogue and uh, love the art by, by Derek Robertson. So this, I, I'm glad that they didn't call this something else. Um, cause you could see how it could be, you know, justice league, um, they could have called it Justice League Fortress or what have you. Now, granted, Justice League play a big role in issue two, n- not as much in one. Obviously, they're mis- you know, in various states of <laughs> either in case of Flash, injury or death, uh, Cyborg, same, uh, others captured inside the alien ship. Um, but no, at its heart, this is a Batman story. And what does Batman do in the situation where the stakes are so far above his power level? Uh, that's pretty interesting. Uh, all right. Yeah. Up next, we have Robin number 16. This is written by Joshua Williamson. Pencils by Roger Cruz, Norm Ratman on inks, Luis Guerrero on colors, Troy Petrie on letters. Uh, we get a big curveball here as <laughs> we know Lord Deathman sh- showed up on Lazarus Island asking for sanctuary, saying uh, Flatline was out to kill him. They don't really take any chances. They do chain him up while they're trying to get some answers, both Connor Hawk and... Damien, but eventually they sort of uh, believe what he's saying in terms of, yeah, she's gone crazy, don't know what she's up to, 
you've got to go to her and, and both of them, uh, both Damien and Connor recognize it as a, as a trap, but they, they do believe what Lord Deathman is saying in that something is, has happened to flatline since she returned from the Lazarus tournament. But we find out once, once they get there, which is interesting, they, they team up with hero, the Japanese Batman who apparently quit Batman incorporated. So I guess we won't be seeing him in the upcoming, um, Ed Brisson, Batman incorporated, which is kind of funny. Um, <laughs> because Damien says, uh, weren't you a member of Ghostmaker incorporated? <laughs> uh, and, and here I was like, uh, don't you mean Batman incorporated? Yeah. I'm not happy. My father turned over part of his operation to that pretender. So I guess we know how Damien feels about Ghostmaker. but, but regardless, they go to, uh, the headquarters of, or hideout of Lord Deathman. They do get ambushed. So it's, um, sort of, uh, confirms their belief that it was a trap. And, and it's a great scene where Robin, stops the kind of thinks he stops the trap, but then there's a trap within the trap, which he uh, calls out. Oh, they set a trap for whoever solved the first trap respect. So uh, I thought that was pretty fun. Um, but the twist at the end here from Joshua Williamson is that flatline is flatline. She's the same as the last time that Damien's are. And this is actually a double cross. And it was just Lord Deathman trying to get Damien and uh, Connor Hawk off of Lazarus Island uh, because then the scene shifts back to Lord Deathman chained up there in the temple, and we see somebody uh, unlocking his chains, and uh, it turns out it's Mother Soul, um, and appropriately named Mother Soul because uh, we get a splash page at the end from Roger Cruz where her and Lord Deathman, who, if you're not aware, his head is literally a skull, and they're pretty much soul kissing. It looks like they're deep into it. Uh, so what is the connection to each their own? (laughs) Yeah. Right. What is the connection between Lord death man and, and mother soul? Um, and yeah, that can't be pleasant kissing a skull like that, but sure. It's, it's LGBTQ and N for necrophilia. Cause isn't, isn't Lord death man like an actual corpse? I mean, I don't know. know, Yeah. I think so. They should put a pride. They should put a pride label on this comic. Yeah. I mean, unlike, unlike, uh, director bones, because we see him very, but, but bones, his skin is trans, his skin and muscles are translucent. So technically skin yeah. could be there. I don't think that's the case yeah. with Lord Deathman. Yeah. I think he, he is dead. So yeah. But any, but I mean, this was a fun book. This is, it was, yeah. this Robin book, much like the Joker book has been a surprise for me in terms of how much I've enjoyed it because everybody knows how overused I think the Joker is. And I've never been a Damian Wayne fan, uh, but uh, Joshua Williamson has continued to uh, evolve him as a character and grow him as a, as a character and his maturity is, is fun to see. So yeah. what do you think of this one? Well, I, I, everything you just said, I don't need to repeat it, but the one thing that you, you, you sort of breezed over, but it was, it's a nice segue to to allow me to address it. Uh, thank you. Is the fact that, while all this is going on, more people are coming to Lazarus Island because it's a place for sort of like orphans or like, I guess you could call them martial artist orphans or people that are looking for a place that they feel out of place in normal society. And, and they, and, and, uh, in various parts of this, of this particular issue, uh, Robin and uh, Connor Hark, Hawk welcome people to Lazarus Island. And, that's that's sort of nice, and it, it sort of it made me actually realize that Lazarus Island is becoming almost like what Teen Titans Academy c- 
could have been <laughs> in a sense in that this is we might get you, you you never know that the type of concepts or ideas that might lead to something really great teen titans academy has been an abject failure but maybe some of the new legacy characters or, or genuinely new characters that might be popular moving forward to the dc universe might actually find their origins on lazarus islands as students on lazarus island as opposed to students with teen titans academy or as legacy characters under other mainstream heroes so i i actually really like this it works and because joshua williamson I agree with you 100%. I happily eat my words. I was worried when he started Robin. I, I wasn't a big fan of Damien. He's made me like Damien again. Damien was a narcissistic little, uh, you know, he became a jerk. I didn't like him anymore. But Joshua Williamson has made me like Damien again. And he's fun. He's actually fun. And his characters are fun. Connor Hawk is fun. We got, this is cool stuff. We even got teen, this is leading into like Lady Shiva was in one of the issues, my, one of my favorite characters. And this is, this is martial arts fun. It's DC fun. And full props to Joshua Williamson. I agree with you. This issue was a lot of fun too. I love, and the misdirection here, this has got to be the biggest surprise of I, who would have thought Mr. Death and Mother's Soul, you know, you know, it's, you know, slurping t- each other's tongues. I mean, oh, what the hell's that about? And then, you know, uh, flatline, you know, just showing up and, you know, she's casual. What's the big deal? Like clear misdirection, misdirection to the uh, reader, misdirection to the care to Robin and Connor Hawk. I very well done. Art, uh, art was great. Uh, it was funny. It was, uh, we, we got to, you know, again, all these different martial artists and it, it feels natural. It feels fun. I, I got a shout out to the cover. I love the cover with Mr. You know, death holding, uh, holding the, the heart, which I, I, you know, this scene never appears in the comic book, the scene that's on the cover, but, uh, it, I, I assumed looking at the cover that he was actually holding Damien's heart because it originally flatline took, you know, when flatline and Damien first met, she ripped Damien's heart out literally. Uh, but he, he was then put in the Lazarus pit and got his heart back or got one regenerated. So technically Damien's heart is still out there being used for nefarious purposes to create other, I don't know, clones of Damien or something, I think. But in any event, that'll probably see some fruition out or in some future storyline, but a lot of fun. Uh, Joshua Williamson, I, I don't want this series to end, but I know it will. Unfortunately, I think it's destined to end in issue seven, next issue, isn't it? Is it? I'm not sure if it's ending. Um, I hope it doesn't. Or if it's just Joshua Williamson's last issue on the book. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't think I've seen a solicitation past 18. So, yeah, it may be, it may be done. But, yeah, who would – I never would have thought I would miss a Damien book. Yeah. <laughs> so i got to be honest. Yeah. So, yeah, fantastic job. Uh, all right, let's move on. Last book we need to talk about, War World Revolution Part 3, written by Philip Kennedy Johnson. Art is by Will Conrad and Brent Peoples. Colors by Lee Luffridge. Letters by Dave Sharp. And then we do have uh, The Backup, which is also written by Philip Kennedy Johnson. Uh, but art there is by David Lapham. Colors by Trish Mulvihill. And letters by Dave Sharp. Uh, what do you think of this one? Uh, well, uh, same compliments as before. I, I've been really enjoying what Philip Kennedy Johnson has been doing 
uh, building this uh, narrative slowly, ever so slowly moving toward. You can just feel that it's building towards something that Superman eventually is going to be fighting Mongol. But as he's getting there, he's building up. You can feel the the tension rising, the hope building, the 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 the, the Felosian slaves uh, will slowly at some point likely get their powers back. But there's there's giant engines that will have to be converted. The yellow, the the red energy, sun energy is going to be converted into yellow energy. But they need they need uh, John Henry Irons back on Earth to help them with some calculations, and they're communicating with them, and that leads to the backup feature that you read. There's so many weaving parts here. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Lucio Perillo on the on the cover. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, not all his covers have hit with me, but I love the coloring, the darker purple hues in the background of Superman. Superman just looks epic in his classic, classic uh, uh, costume. Just look, it looks it, uniform. It just looks really, really good. Death from Below. I love the cover. And um, just the, uh, as far as what, what uh, as far as the story itself, it continues to build on the mythology. One thing that Philip Kennedy Johnson did good to really good effect when he wrote The Last God, uh, he, he's really good at building up his own mythology for the story. And he's very clearly been doing that in this series. It hasn't always hit with everybody. And I, and I think, I think maybe if I've read you correctly, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Jace, that, that was one of maybe one of your criticisms is that maybe it's a little bit too much into the, the lore and the, the mythology and maybe not enough. Cause it does, it doesn't feel like a traditional Superman story. And of course, Miles, you know, you know, opinions can vary on that. I kind of like that because this, this is, it's really building something that I think is, is, it feels like a unique Superman story, even though it's dealing, it's sort of retelling the story of Mongol. And, uh, we, you know, we, we have uh, all the characters are slowly moving into place for one final epic battle with Leah, with, uh, Midnighter, with, uh, with <laughs> Apollo and, Everything and, and this orphan character and darling character, and we got origins of all of these characters and previous issues. We've had a lot of build up here. I, I keep trying to imagine in my mind how awesome it's going to be to own. I hope they do an oversized hardcover of this full War World saga. I'm gonna because I'm gonna be first in line to pick that sucker up because I, I really love it. I love the art here. The arts, the, the arts, fantastic. I'm not as far as the back. The backup feature deals with conduit. It feels, I don't feel this, the backup feature is that, I, I, I don't feel it's absolutely necessary. The backup feature is called The World Without Clark Kent. Terribly named. It's really got nothing to do with that, really. It just has to do with John Henry Items, their, their, Theola, uh, the, the, the character, the Theologian Theola is recovering and they're, they're trying to feed her the appropriate sort of energy from the Genesis fragment. And it ends up that Conduit, that old enemy of Superman from the Triangle days has returned and he, he's, he's, he steals the Genesis fragment. Uh, and it, it ends with, it ends with Lois Lane, you know, calling in John Kent, Supergirl, et cetera, all the rest of the Superman family to, to, to go after conduit. So you're going to have sort of an epic confrontation inevitably between the Superman, what's left of the Superman family on earth against conduit, uh, verse and, and then Clark Kent Kalal on war world is going to have the authority and all the powered up Phaelosians do battle one final battle against uh, Mongol, and I 
Hey man, if you've, for those people who have been on board so far, it's the same old, same old, you're going to love it. And if you've, you know, I don't know, this issue isn't going to change minds. You've either been with it to this point or you're not. But for myself, uh, I've really been enjoying it. So I'm I'm actually kind of curious, has your opinion sort of stayed the same, same kind of lukewarm or have you gotten on board yet or what? It's so tough because, like, like you mentioned, Philip Kennedy Johnson's an, an incredible world builder, an incredibly talented writer. But yeah, at the end of the day, this feels more like a, a story for somebody else other than other than Superman. Um, at least for a lot of the the big moments. And you know, I mentioned before, maybe this would have been the story where they could have flipped it, and John Kent goes out, and this is how he earns the right to be called Superman, and. Philip Kennedy Johnson, you know, heard, saw me say that um, and and pushed back on it, saying there's a specific reason John is where he is and Kal-El's where he is. So we look forward to having him back on the show to talk about that when the time is right. Um, so yeah, it's it's not the problem is it's you know with these monthly comics, you're kind of judging on what has come and you don't know the end, as opposed to the writer who knows the end of the story and the end of the story could completely flip it around for me where I, I really enjoy what's happening. Um, and again, I'm not saying that this isn't an intriguing story, but yeah, throughout I have questioned whether it's a, it's a Superman story. And a lot of it for me is just the fact that, you know, he's not wearing his traditional costume. I don't really have a desire to see him in this gladiatorial outfit. I've talked so many times about how the exile storyline that Roger Stern did back in the late nineties did that to great effect in a much shorter period of time. And so this feels a little derivative of, of that. Now, all that being said, what I do absolutely love, and it has me greatly anticipating future issues of this series, is this idea that uh, between John Henry Irons and his, uh, and his niece, Natasha Irons, have come up with this idea of what the Genesis fragment is and how it can filter the star forges on War World change the energy that it puts out to make it safe for um, for Superman to absorb and get his powers back. So if you're wondering how the gray hair goes away or how he becomes Superman to the point where he can single-handedly take out all these war zones and Mongol himself, well, that's how it's going to happen to the point where even the Theologians themselves are going to be super-powered. Um, and so, yeah, you would think it's going to be no contest. Obviously, we're a long way to go before we get to that point, um, especially based on the fact that in the backup story, Conduit shows up at the end and throws a wrench in their plans. So I'm really excited. That's the moment I'm now anticipating, right? Where the moment where he becomes Superman again, fully powered. That's what I want. I, I think that is the biggest reason this hasn't felt like a Superman story because in terms of being an inspiration, in terms of his heroism, in terms of, the way he deals with people and respects people. Um, he's still been Superman the entire time. There's been never been a question of that. Um, and so I appreciate that. I just, at the end of the day, I don't read Superman comics to see him, you know, being Conan the Barbarian. You know, I want to see him use his powers um, along with, you know, his morality, his heroism, his courage, um, and the way he inspires people. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, this very much was an issue that reminded me that you know it's it's all that stuff. This is a depowered Superman. I mean, there's one panel when he's talking to Osul Ra, um, 
where you get a close up on on Superman and he looks really old because all you see is the gray hair. Um, so I'm 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 looking forward to him being being powered back up. So we'll have, uh, greatly anticipating that moment. Maybe one of my moments of the year. So. Uh, all right. Well, that's the last issue uh, independently that we're going to discuss. There are some trades and collections. We've got Batman, the deluxe edition book six hardcover. This collects the last of the Tom King run. So city of Bane um, issues 70 through 85 Batman annual four and Batman secret files. Number two, we also have uh, the flash volume 16 Wally West returns. That's the first Jeremy Adams arc on the book. I cannot recommend that. Highly enough. Uh, Suicide Squad Volume 2 Ambushed. That's when Ambush Bug joins the team. Peacemaker leading uh, the whole uh, War for Earth 3 storyline. Uh, Tom King's Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow trade paperback, which collects that series, which was really great. And uh, I think Tom King did, crafted a story that fantastically and very succinctly and accurately describes who Kara is. And then finally, Zatanna, the Jewel of Gravesend. Uh, trade paperback, which is uh, a new story by, I believe it's pronounced Alis Arden. The art is by Jacqueline de Leon. This is a book that's in DC's YA line. So that looks uh, interesting as well. So uh, that's it for this episode. That's it for the DC books this week. Uh, haven't 100% decided if I'm going to do a Comic-Con recap. I don't know if you guys would be interested in hearing about what I did kind of a play by play blow, blow by blow. Again, it's not like, Oh, I stood in line and got this exclusive or got that comic signed or, um, bought this pop figure. It would be more saying, Oh, I ran into this comic creator and we talked about this. Or, uh, I talked to Brian Kavon about X or that sort of thing. So if you're curious about that, be sure to reach out online and let me know and I'll get one out this week. So, other than that, look for some other Comic-Con content. I did do a few interviews when I was at the show, like I mentioned. Um, and we'll have a lot of guests coming up before the end of the year. Um, now that I've managed to reconnect with some of these people that I haven't talked to in a long time, like Tom Taylor. Because, you know, he's half a world away in Australia. But uh, he should be on soon as well. So, uh, you got anything coming up that you want to... Tea, uh, uh, yeah, I've uh, uh, Wednesday uh, this Wednesday I'll be reviewing some more independent comics uh, with Jim at, uh, of uh, Weird Science DC. We're gonna we're likely going to be reviewing Vampirella Year One Issue One Public Domain Issue Two Blink Number One and Book of Shadows Number One, uh, which are independent comics uh, with Image and other. Publishers, uh, I haven't read them yet, but we're. Uh, I, I have to say, I'm in, I'm enjoying. I'm sort of broadening my horizons a little bit. So, uh, so uh, it's nice. It, it's nice between uh, reviewing the Scott Snyder uh, comic books from Best Jacket Press with yourself, and like we like we've been doing, and reviewing under independent titles. It, it, it's fun. So Mondays, my I do DC reviews with yourself, and Wednesdays uh, some independent work, and then usually on weekends, sometimes you and I review further comics. So. It's uh, working out pretty good. I'm, I'm developing a nice little routine. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and on that note, Spawn Daily will be coming back soon. Um, people have been asking. I said after uh, San Diego Comic-Con. So once I get all my Comic-Con, um, post-Comic-Con work done, all the content that I generated there out into the world, 
I'll be pivoting back to focusing on Spawn, and uh, hopefully we'll get Todd McFarlane on sometime soon. So uh, we appreciate you guys joining us. As always, don't forget, if you're listening to the audio only, head over to YouTube, do a search for Rocky's channel, and subscribe. It's comic space boom exclamation point. Ring the notification bell. Leave some comments. Like this video. You guys know what to do. Uh, conversely, if you're checking us out on YouTube and you haven't subscribed to the comic source, wherever you get your podcast, please do so that way you don't miss out on any of the interviews or other content we have coming up. So we appreciate your support as always. And we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the comic source podcast on Spotify, Apple podcast, Stitcher, Google play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.